be on the dugout. Lay some up and we run out. Step up to the place, swing away, or you get struck out. Pitch you on the mound like you don't wanna face this. Hit it so hard, you be running around the bases. Do it for your teammates, do it for the fan. Do it for your city, true ballers understand. You gotta work together, you gotta find a way. Put your body on the line and make that play. Be on the dugout. Lay some up and we run out. Step up to the place, swing away, or you get struck out. Pitch you on the mound like you don't wanna face this. Hit it so hard, you be running around the base. Beyond the dugout. Beyond the dugout. Well, Kia ora Koto and welcome to Beyond the Dugout. It is episode 34 here on the 10th of December. I'm Jason Gubis, aka Chopper, and with me, my good buddy, being my sidekick, can't separate us mm-hmm. for three months now, DC Damien Collins. Oh, mate. Kia ora, everyone. Kia ora, brother. Kia ora, Jacko. Glad to still have you here, mate. Jacko sitting in uh, today for part of the podcast. Great to have him along here. Uh, uh, Damien, before we start and go any further, man, uh, got to say um, the first week of freedom for the Aucklanders has just been great, man. All of the reports of uh, softball getting underway, both Premier, Prem Reserve, and then all the age groups on the North Shore. Man, it was just fantastic. And everyone just seems so happy to get back out there and play this great game of softball. Yeah, absolutely, mate. We I've been saying all along we need our elite players to be back out there, and they are now. So uh, welcome back to the 2021, or welcome to the 2021-2022 season 09. Um, awesome to see you guys, what you've been doing behind the scenes to keep active. Um, awesome to see all the posts about everything coming up. Um, you know, they do it well up there, and it's just good that they're back on the diamond. It, sh- it sure is, bud. And, and uh, a lot of the talk this season up there hasn't really been about competitiveness, mm. It's been about being up and being connected, bonded together again and, and enjoying each other's company and and starting to get a little bit of normality back in their lives. And that's the winner, if you ask me. Yeah, whatever that is these days. Hey? Yeah, but for sure, you know, um, yeah, no, it's just awesome. Awesome to that, that, that we're all back out there now, that, that uh, this season kind of feels a bit right again with uh, with the 09 back out there. Going to head back up to Auckland myself uh, on Friday, Jackson and I. That'll <laughs> mark three months to the date uh, that we have been out of Auckland. <laughs> I'm gonna miss you, bro. Okay. It's been awesome having you guys here, but I guess you you do have a life to go back to as well. Yeah, couple mm. of weekends of uh, ball for the young fella, uh, and plus a bit of business up there as well. So try and gram that in in ten days before coming back for the last week of work here in Wellington, um, mate. Naomi Shaw last week, what a legend, what a story, what accomplishments she's achieved. Yeah, man, another one that's done it all and literally done it all on the couch. Um, but just so humble, just such a genuine person. Like, there's no, nothing really. Uh, yeah, uh, you wouldn't think that she's an order of merit. You wouldn't think she's in Hall of Fames. Um, you know, you wouldn't think that she's the only female uh, captain to hold hold up a World Cup for for New Zealand uh, in 1982. Great, great year that one. Uh, but yeah, awesome to have a friend on on the couch and get to know her story, but but more, you know, it is indeed. It's good. Uh, I mean, obviously, I've I've known Naomi for a while mm. uh, and worked with her on different events and things. But uh, in this last two or three months, I've got a chance to spend a bit more time uh, with her. And man, she is busy. Oh yeah, she just crams in every minute of the day and making things happen, and does that with the councils we mm. we heard last week, um, but also with board contributes. 
so much uh, oh. all around with it and always a positive experience for people as well. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'd love to see her diary, mate. I mean, I'd love to see how how chocker it really is and how much it's planned out because she'd have to be, eh? She'd have to be. But the fact that you've got this person with all these roles and everything but still coaching the 17s, still coaching the 19s, and, yeah, she's just special. She is special. Well, talking about special, dude, uh, you came up with a great idea to take an opportunity um, <laughs> with a special person who's returned mm. to New Zealand, a legend of our game, and as the guest for this week's pod. Yeah, from one humble person to another. Um, yeah, Don Tricker, I, I saw that he was doing the, the fundraiser at, at Tawa. And um, we've talked about uh, Don a few times, or he's he's come up in passing, you know, with Padres and, and different players that have, have played for the, for him through the years. And we just thought we'd chance today, and he was, he was all too willing to oblige. So awesome. Which is amazing too, you know, a guy that <laughs> works so, so much, he's offshore, <laughs> Um, and we know why he comes back at this time of the year, right? Is to spend some time with his family in Christmas. Yeah, of course. Um, but yet, answered the call, answered the message, and gave up his time freely, and man, did he give it up. It's a lengthy <laughs> podcast. That is because he's achieved and done so much in his career. Oh, it's, and, you know, we'll, we'll throw the disclaimer out that it is a lengthy one, but it's not just what he's done. It's just the way he thinks. And honestly, mate, just sitting here listening to the man, like, yeah, it was just so much gold to write down and chuck on a bumper sticker, if you will, <laughs> afterwards. Um, he's just a wealth of knowledge, and just the way he thinks is, is just unreal. You make a good point, Damien. That's the challenge in this podcast. Get your notebook out, mm. whether you're your you're mum, dad, player, or youngster. Any, everybody. No, yeah. The podcast. Write down the quotes from Don as he goes through this podcast um, and they'll mean something to you when you listen to them, Absolutely. but write them down. The person who sends us the most quotes from this podcast gets themselves a free Beyond the Dugout ball cap. Oh, I love it. That's a that that's a good reward for some effort. Yeah, no, nah, absolutely. Sit there. You, you might think we're a bit crazy asking you to do this, but I swear these are the things that you're going to put up on the wall, look at every day, and just figure out your own way in life. And and Dom won't tell you how to how to do it, but it's just the way he thinks and the way he can take something out of something and and make it so simple. Um, and the way he explains that and how to do that. It's yeah, it's pretty cool. Thought provoking oh very much so made me think about my own self mm. listening to him too oh, absolutely oh, i i actually couldn't wait to listen to it again you know i mean when i do my editing and stuff and i was sitting here on the edge of my seat like just engulfed in everything that he said but um yeah i was actually looking forward to doing uh, doing the the replay and, and listening for another few hours you know so that's i mean if 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 that's what what it um you know that that's what it what I walked away from it, um, as well as everything else that's in it. So yeah, no, I'm excited. Have your notebooks ready. Mm. There's a reason why this guy, two times, gold medal winning uh, coach for the Golden Homes Black Sox, high performance uh, legend coach, mm. coaching coach if you like, at Sport New Zealand, All Blacks high performance advisor, Olympics, two, two World Cups, Olympics um, <laughs> advisor. Commonwealth advisor, Silver Ferns advisor, and now San Diego Padres performance advisor. There's a reason this guy has trailblazed. Mm. 
you need to grab that notebook, have your pen ready, make sure you got plenty of ink, because one of the most quotes wins. Let's get to it, mate. Absolutely. Let's go. Well, I tell you what, a high-performance coach uh, makes, I guess, their own opportunities. But when you're a Black Sox coach and stepping out into the real world, sometimes the doors open a little for you. And if you've been successful, like our next guest here tonight, two gold medals, one offshore in South Africa, one on home soil in Christchurch, is just the tip of the iceberg. Don Trick is joining us on the couch this afternoon here at Beyond the Dugout. Kia ora, Don. Yeah, kia ora, guys. Hey Don, welcome back. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, welcome. Well, welcome. Welcome to the couch, but welcome yeah. back to the O four. Yeah. Without a doubt. I mean it's great it's great to have you back in New Zealand. I know um you're probably sought after so much when you do come back to New Zealand and you probably just want to spend a bit of time with your family. Um but uh, we're really, really grateful for you to take a little bit of time to share your story. Uh and also I think I think tonight's gonna be kind of like answers a few questions for people around sport in general. You you You've been involved with so many different things. Yeah, no, it's been a oh, it's been a privilege really in terms of some of the things that the opportunities that I've had, um, and if I think about some of the experiences um, that um, that have been afforded to me, like Olympic Games, Rugby World Cup finals, um, Commonwealth Games, um, Major League Baseball, um, none of that would have been possible without softball. Um, and um, you know, I often say, in terms of again, it's it's crazy how. Um, a little bit of success, people think, oh, this guy must know a few things. And then, then um, doors get opened up and things like that. But you know, the reality is we were one pitch away from coming fourth in 2000. And I probably wouldn't be on the couch if uh, if, if the Canadians were good enough to, to, to do some damage that, that time. So for me, it's um, every opportunity I can um, can share, um, you know, some of the experience that I've had. And um, also just share in terms of how grateful I am to the sport of softball. Because like I said, I've been involved with it since I was four years of age. And um, it's wonderful lifelong friends. Uh, it's just been a great sport for me. I love that. I love how he says everything starts and is born from softball. Uh, Damien, why don't we start there? Don Norhead Queer, what's your fucker papa genealogy? Yeah, I um, born, bred, and um, yeah, probably poorly educated in Porirua. <laughs> uh, so I um, was, um, Everything that was important to me was within five k's of where I was um, brought up. So I was born in Elston, um, right in the backdrop of um, Nadi Tor. Um, I um, went to school in Cannons Creek, um, Brandon Intermediate, and Poirier College, uh, and um, grew up in Champion Street and Castor Crescent, and, and two streets in, in Poirier, and um, and then brought my first home in Titahi Bay um, many many years ago, and then moved out of there and. When we started the family, moved into Papa Kofi, which is again um, next suburb across. Uh, so uh, that's that's me there, um, involved in the sport um, from the age of four. Um, I was born into the sport. Uh, my granddad played in the very first game of softball um, in New Zealand at the Seaview and the Ford Motor Company, um, and that's an interesting story in itself. Is that it was a bunch of Canadians working at the um, motor factory, yeah, uh, and uh, they started playing softball, and that's how it got a foothold. If they started playing baseball, probably softball wouldn't have started in New Zealand. We would have been playing baseball. Uh, so my granddad, um, who was Buck Laws, went on to be the chief umpire. And um, and so I always used to go to his place, and he had a collection of, he used to repair wooden bats back yeah. in those days, because when we started playing, there was no aluminium bats. It was all wooden <laughs> bats. So, um, yeah. 
uh, very, 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 very fortunate to, to share that experience. I also remember going to his place and people like Bill Massey would show up. Yeah. Um, I'd ask Bill to show me his grips. He would never show me his grips. It's probably because <laughs> I was only about five or six. But, uh, but uh, you know, I managed to grow up around those types of guys. Fantastic. Wow. Sounds like a cool upbringing, doesn't it, Damien? Absolutely. Um, you you talk about um, living in, a, you know, everything's right there on your doorstep in Porirua. Um, kind of everything, when I speak to you or have heard you talk, your love of Porirua, and, and we know where you are at the moment. You're in, you're in the United States in San Diego on yeah. one of the biggest sporting competitions formats there are. Um, but home has always been put it over, and and you hold it so dear. Why? Yeah, well, it's you know, there's I'm indebted to um, uh, three things that, that that make me up. One is I'm indebted to my family. You know, I grew up in a um, like I say a, um, a a sporting home. I, I'd say I grew up in a salt and pepper shaker type home in terms of you know yeah, the kitchen table. You've got the salt and pepper shakers out, and you're doing strategy and trying to figure things out. That was I grew up in that family. Really supportive. Um, I have three older brothers um, who um, uh, you know, let me play with them, uh, and uh, an older sister and two younger sisters. Um, and so th- then it's um, you know the sport of softball in terms of um, indebted to the opportunities that that sports provided for me. Uh, and the third one is is Porirua. Um What um, what that gave me was the the confidence to connect with people, to talk to people. My best friends are, are still from Porirua. My very best friends are um, all went to Porirua College with me. Um, they um, will readily slap me around if I think I'm getting ahead of myself, <laughs> um, and they still do it today. You know, so guys like Fetu Taho, um, Ian Satsford, Peter Vella, Tommy Honey, um, and and uh, Russell Vella. There's a whole bunch of them there. And it's like, uh, and that's the cool thing about when I come home, is that um, we get together um, and uh, we have a barbecue and. The kids will come along and the kids will laugh about the same stories that they've heard year after year after year. Um, but all it is is laughter. Yeah. Um, so, and, and that's why um, I'm so grateful for Porirua in terms of it, it gave me the confidence to talk to people, to connect with people, to understand people's stories, to understand people's uniqueness and recognise that not everyone's like me. Sopple, you were saying, introduced at the early age of four years old, but was there ever any other sports that... Don Tricker would that may have taken up or, or, or wanted to take further. No, I played. Um, yeah, so in the winter time, I played soccer. Um, you know, probably a, you know, I know the disgust of my my parents. I was the first soccer player in the in the family, um, and uh, again, fortunate to play with some really really good players. Is that we won a national title at the under fourteens, um, and that was on the back of a guy called Robbie Tembrooker, right? Um, who was playing for New Zealand at fifteen. So <laughs> the very next year, he's playing for the All Whites. So it's it's the uh, Pretty, it's like the Jonah Lombie strategy, you know. It's like just all ten of us just kick the ball to him, and, yeah. and, uh, and we're, we're okay. Um, so soccer was uh, was a you know a sport that I played a lot, um, and just like anything, as a New Zealand kid, we played everything. Um, didn't play cricket really. We played cricket, um, backyard cricket. We played cricket ourselves, and this was again how how cricket and softball sort of um, didn't quite work together. Is that cricket was in every community, um, and it stopped at Tawa. Um, and then started again at Parramatta. Cricket never came into Porirua. Is that right? Um, and if you know, Damien would know that Porirua is a, a massive softball town, particularly way back in the day. Mm. And it was because we didn't have a choice. Is that we either did athletics um, or we played softball. Uh, so I wasn't very fast, so we played softball. <laughs> um, and um, and then after that, I played um, 
um, played rugby at, at college and for a year or so, and that was about it. And then it was um, then I hurt myself, and then it was oh, softball's the game I'll, I'll stick at. You, you know, I love my basketball. We had the NBL um, final at uh, Toro Praha Arena this this year. Must be uh, pretty special with, for you to go in and see a whole wall of you holding a trophy. Yes, yeah, I mean, I don't often get a few things over Mark Sorensen, but uh, <laughs> he um, he moved into, and he's now in Pahatanui, um, in a you know, gorgeous place. Um, and of course, he's a rate player now of Porira City, and he complains about the rates all the time, and he goes in and he sees that photo, and, uh, and he starts giving me shit about it. And say, hey, Brutus, now when you get your photo on the wall in the rec centre, you don't have to pay rates. <laughs> well, that sent him off again. We right. just won one up at Walter Nash now. Yeah, knowing which button to push, that's gold. Uh, fantastic. Um, before we go any further, you, know, you talked about that first game of softball uh, that was played at that Ford Company, and I'd heard stories about it. What did you hear about what softball was like what, and, and why? What did it look like for them back in those days for your granddad? Well, it's probably, um, yeah. I'm only guessing here, um, and I saw a little wee bits of it in terms of it would have been closer to slow pitch than than fast pitch that we know, um, and it wasn't until a few years later in terms of where the iconic pitches from the hut, um, um, there was a guy Smith from Wanyu Yamada that, that, that started in terms of um, actually um, throwing the ball hard, and then they had the Bill Masseys and all the rest of it started coming in behind that. So initially it would have been, um, yeah, New Zealanders play the game, any game, in terms of they, they play it for real, um, they play it with um, a lot of physicality, uh, and um, yeah, they probably in those days probably not very smart because I'm pretty sure the catchers wouldn't have been wearing masks. <laughs> uh, so we just would have we again we just would have picked up the, the bat and the ball and we just would have played the game, yeah. and then we would have figured out how this game's going to work. And, and if I think about you know uh, my own development in terms of you know a lot of the coaching that we did when I was growing up was as players we were trying to figure out how to play this game. Uh, we didn't have the diet of baseball or anything like that on television, so we couldn't actually leverage off, oh, is that how you're supposed to play this game? So, and, and in many ways, in terms of that ended up, if I think about it, ended up being the Black Sox' greatest strength when I was playing and coaching because we weren't captured by baseball, the strategies of baseball. We actually figured out how to play softball for ourselves. Uh, and, um, and still remember in terms of you know, the Japanese would always pull their, their starting pitcher in about the fifth or the sixth inning um, and bring a closer in, and we think, thank God for that, because we couldn't <laughs> get a hit off the, off yeah. the, off the starter. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. <laughs> the strategy is completely different. What um, You mentioned there about uh, influential people, uh, and you're really kind, and you talked a little bit about a couple of your junior coaches, yeah. uh, Mr. Tuffrey and yep. uh, is it Mr. Haggis. Haggis, no, no. So, so I'll talk about these two. And yeah. um, So Mr. Tuff... Um, was uh, he coached us from 5 to 15. So, again, all my mates, um, we pretty much had the same team um, all the way through. We were really, we, we're, um, in that Western Bays we played, um, we, we didn't cross over with Wellington very often. Um, so we had our, we had legendary battles with Tawa. Um, they had a really good pitcher, a guy by the name of Steve Curry. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so we would play against them, and Mr. Tuffrey taught us um, the value of, of one, it was about fundamentals, and two, it was about the value of being in a team. Um, and, um, and and again, it's like winning together, losing together. And the other thing about Mr. Tuffery is he taught us lots of life lessons that, um, that some of us didn't quite pick up initially, and it took us, may take us a little bit of a while to pick up. But things like um, Mr. Tuffery used to buy us an ice cream after every game. 
So we love Mr. Tough. And all all 10 of us would get in his car. Back in the days, no seatbelts. Yeah, yeah. So all 10 would get in one car and you go off to the Alex Moore Park wherever you played. And then after about four or five years, he, the, the ice cream stopped and we started getting popsicles. And uh, Of course, we, you know, we were about probably nine or ten at that stage and we go, what's the deal, Mr. Tough? What's, what's, what's happened to the ice creams? And he says, boys, you'll figure this out one day, but you know, marriage is expensive. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like, oh, I kept that one under my so I thought, so thought about it. And, so, and then I get married and I thought, oh, you understand what he was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and then Haggis. Um, Haggis was that really special coach that coached me in those transition years where the sport was easy. So when we were with Mr. Tuffery, we had a really good team, so we dominated. Didn't really know what losing was. Um, and then Haggis took us through that um, those 15, 16, 17 years where the sport got really hard. You started playing against men, and you actually started losing. Um, and um, and it wasn't fun because you weren't dominating. So he took, took us through that, that um, period, and his key messages was about class, was all about, again, always looking beyond the results, trying to figure out why things happen and things like that. But it was more about, hey, um, whether we win or we lose, um, we're, we're the same people and we do it with class. Um, and um, so for me, in terms of that, was the lesson that I took from this, from, from Haggis um, when I moved forward in terms of, okay, so um, I want to be a good winner and I want to be a good loser in terms of, and sometimes things don't work out. Um, so, and the other thing is that he kept, um, he kept us in the game when the game got hard, um, and a lot of really talented um, players give up the moment things get hard because they're not conditioned to that. So, and uh, so that was where I was really grateful for for Haggis. Fantastic! Sounds like two two amazing coaches. Before we started um, tonight, you told me while you you were still playing junior ball, you actually started your coaching career. Yeah, but that's what that's what we did. That's you know, you, the, I've heard many of your, your guests um, when they grew up, and it's a family game, and mm. you, you grow up and you, you know, you're, you're devoted to your club, and you do whatever you can to help your club, and and it's um, it's an, it's again ingrained in you that um, we want to you know create opportunities for others to play the game, and it's like, and if I think about um, so back then, it was about that was what you did. And if I think back and start to think about what's the real purpose of coaching, what's the real purpose of sport, it's about joy. Um, and um, and it's, again, if, if, if we don't enjoy ourselves, why would we play it? Why would we umpire it? Why would we coach it? Why would we watch it? So um, so it's about joy at, at, at that young age. And so my job there is, in terms of, is, is share some knowledge, um, share some um, understand where these kids are and create an opportunity and an environment for them to get out there and express themselves and do some pretty cool things. Um, and if we did that, um, then they're going to want to come back the next week and they're going to want to come back and bring a mate. Um, and that's how you, how you build your clubs. Mm. Um, and that, I've always taken that all the way through. And then, um, then when I started um, coaching a little bit more seriously, it still came down to the fundamental of um, why are we doing this? Um, and um, I still come back to even with the Padres, why we, what do we really want with the Padres? Is that, you know, we want to win. Sure, we want to win. But why do we want to win? Because we want to bring joy to our fan base. Um, that's why we want to do it. This thinking pattern that you have uh, around um, that, I guess that key word right there, why, uh, and asking that of yourself and of groups or, or organisations that you work with, when did that start happening for you? Oh, pretty much from day away. I'll go, I'll go all the way back to the salt and pepper family. 
um, where you know we did things on the on the kitchen room um, table and things like that. We tried to figure things out, and I, I always tried to figure things out. Even with I had three older brothers, um, all smarter than me, um, but they probably didn't spend um, the the time that I did in terms of trying to remove myself and, and having a um, a different view of okay, why did this really go on. They were much better at flushing things. I, I was always in terms of I need to understand why this worked so that if I get an opportunity to do this again, I'll, I'll you know, do it a little bit better. Uh, so then that carried all the way through. Um, you know, I had a, uh, my career was, was in IT, and that was all about in terms of um, reflection, in terms of um, constantly as, as things were fast-paced in, in that sector, as things were changing, you need to figure out in terms of why are they changing, what could I do better, and how can I continue to move on? Because if I carry on, hold on to what I knew two years ago, I won't be relevant today. I certainly won't be relevant in two years' time. So mm, just mm. keep on adapting. Yeah. Um, and um, and whether it was, I'd watch any sport, um, sports that I knew nothing about, and I would try and figure out why did that happen. Um, so um, whether I watched basketball and I'd see a play and I think, well, I wonder why that's going on, or why did they do this, or why did they do that, and that's that's just an inquisitive mind that I've always had. Fair enough. Makes, makes complete sense. Salt and pepper. Leave that on the dinner table with my kids. I'm just going to make sure that happens all the now time. Now I understand why Nana and Papa had so many salt and pepper shakers. We just should have done more strategy at yeah. the table. <laughs> yeah, so when my parents did say to me, get up and do the dishes, I would say, well, maybe we should spend a bit more time around the salt and pepper. Exactly. Mm. Let's not yeah. tell Jackson that excuse. Okay, good idea. Um, before we get on to coaching, because I know there's a vast, a lot of coaching things that you've done, not only for softball, but other codes codes as well. Let's talk a bit about your playing uh, playing career. Um, obviously, Porirua was the start and the big part of, of your life. What was that like coming through that club and then eventually cracking into uh, into Premier Softball? Yes, yeah, so I started it um, with Porirua like as a four-year-old. Um, my first um, premier game with Prairie as a 15-year-old. 15. Uh, and um, yeah, I remember going to the Vic Guth as a, as a 15-year-old and Kevin Hurley making me look silly. Um, so <laughs> You're not the only one. I, I, um, I faced, I had nine pitches against him. Um, and again, I'm, you know, like I, I tried to figure out what was going on. He threw me a drop ball. I swung at it. Um, he threw me a rise ball. I looked at it. And he threw me another rise ball over my head and I swung at it three times in a row. Struck me out three times in a row. So, um, uh, so, so I grew up in there with Pori Rua and, and we had a really good team. We had Lauren Alga was pitching for us. We had Les Bishop, Gary Cartany, um, to name a few. Um, very good ball players. And then with Pori Rua, we actually won what was called the, the Quantel Cup, which was like a knockout competition back in the day. So all the clubs entered. Yeah. Uh, but like the FA Cup. Right. Um, every team entered and you'd play your your um, your Wellington and then the best team, the team that won the Wellington Little Week knockout comp would then go and play um, the Central Region, which would be Horofenua and, mm-hmm. and Marawatu. Um, and then you win that, and then you go to like another regional, and then there's almost like four teams go to the like the final four, um, and it's typically a team from Auckland, a team from Wellington, a team from um, Christchurch, and a team from Dunedin um, that would go to the final four. And and uh, that year we we beat um, Cardinals, I don't know about fifteen or sixteen innings, you know, typical one nil game. Uh, and so that was a, the first national title that I, I won with um, with Porirua. But also, you know, growing up um, um, through those age grades is that well, I was part of some incredible t- age grade teams. And I remember we played against the Aucklanders, played against Eddie a lot. 
Um, but Eddie didn't have Michael White and, and, and Dean Stevenson pitching for them. Um, so we pretty much dominated um, age-grade um, softball um, with on the back of, of those two guys. Um, you know, I first started um, rep softball. Michael White was shortstop and I was the pitcher. Um, and then somehow he figured out that he was a better pitcher than me. So <laughs> he went, started pitching and I went to shortstop. So, uh, and that was uh, the cool thing about in terms of the way that we learned to play the game is that we're on the sideline figuring out how to do things ourselves. Yeah. Um, and then from there, um, went to play for PK, um, probably in my early twenties yeah. and stayed yeah. with PK right through. So that was almost like, um, PK were at that stage, um, struggled in Wellington softball. And then Kevin Kelly decided it was time to, um, build a bit of a team and, and the team was built around Kevin Henderson, myself, Les Bishop, um, and Gary Cartney. And then we brought Rocky Vitali in um, from the States. And then over the years, we had some um, incredible players like Max Elliott would come across. And then slowly we would build the team. Um, Mike Nichols would be in there. Murray McLean would come and play. And then before you know it, we had an absolutely stacked team. So the first few years took us a little while to find our feet. Um, we won the very first um, Lion Red um, tournament. Yeah. Uh, and then, um, and then we we were always it was ourselves or Marist or ourselves and Cardinals, but it was always um, a battle. So we were always there or thereabouts, and that was again typically uh, on the back of good pitching. Um, and um, yeah, we had some guys who could hit the ball. Two questions about the era, more than two to be fair, but two two that <laughs> raced to my head. One was when you first started that premier section and even that line red. Was that the era there was no batting helmets worn? Uh, we're no, no um, club softball, no batting helmets. Yeah. Lion, Lion Red, there were batting helmets. So I, I know I look old. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but Lion Red would have been 87-ish, maybe 86, 87, yeah. something in there. So, um, so I don't know when the batting helmets came in, um, but certainly when I first started playing. Yeah. I mean, I was my first big game at High Tide Park. It was a 15-year-old. I was playing Island Bay. Um, I'd come straight. I'd been at the beach in, in, um, in Paikokariki. So I'd come down from the beach, um, grab my tennis shoes, because um, that's all I had in those days, tennis shoes and my glove, and I went off and I played my first Prem game against Island Bay for Proira, slipping and sliding on the yeah. sand at uh, Hotaro Park. <laughs> Never played on on, um, on dirt before, no. so it was like, oh, well, maybe I need to wear something else in the yeah. tennis shoes. <laughs> Uh, those are the tennis shoes that you used to paint white on a Friday night before you played. You, know, so you only had one pair as well. Yeah, yeah fair enough, fair enough. Um, I've seen some footage of you playing back in those line red um, series and, and days, um, and the things that I picked up from watching you play, it almost seemed like oh, this was bat- your batting uh, more than anything. Um, it almost seemed like you had... I won't call it mind games with the pitcher, but there was a smirk on your face at times and it, it looked like you were setting them up at times. And Was that a big part of your game as a player? Yeah, I mean, it took me a while to, to, um, to actually uh, be confident in myself, to actually know that I was pretty good. Um, I always knew I could hit. Uh, but again, then you'd, have, you'd play against guys like Chubb and Chubb would just you know, take you to school. And then you think maybe I can't hit, <laughs> um, and uh, so then um, then I sort of got to a stage. I was I was playing with the New Zealand team. It's about 26, 27, and then it was almost like there was I don't know. There was a moment where the game got really easy, um, and the way it got easy is I just simplified what I was thinking about, and that was I you know emptied everything that I was thinking about, and then I would just I, would, I did. I used to play games with the pitchers, and I used to. 
And I know that when I played against Jacko and Chubb, they used to try and disrupt my timing. Um, and then I, that's why I started laughing. I was like, oh, these guys are thinking about me. Um, whereas up until then, I was thinking, shit, how am I going to hit these guys? Yeah. Um, so then it was like, okay, the more they think about me, the less they think about themselves. So that straight away, I must be in a pretty good position. And that was pretty much the way it worked. And then, and then hitting's pretty simple. Um, and that is that, you know, pitchers don't want to throw strikes. So um, don't chase and um, hit strikes. Um, and if you can do that, you're going to be a pretty good hitter. Um, so, and figure out what the pitch is trying to do to you. And again, with, with, um, with those guys, I knew what they were trying to, what pitch they were trying to stay away from. Um, so then you'd almost eliminate that pitch. Yeah. So that meant that they're only going to give, um, throw in certain parts of the zone. So. I love talking to you. It's kind of like everything gets so much simpler and clearer, <laughs> to be fair. Um, you making the socks, and you, you got to play uh, with the socks on and off from 86 to 91. When you first made the socks, this kid from Porirua started when he was four years old, his granddad basically started the game here. What was that feeling like? I was, um, it was back in the day where you, um, you, you found out that you made a team through the newspaper or the radio. So you certainly weren't, you didn't get a phone call or anything like that. Um, and massive excitement. So again, you can think about it in terms of all my aunts and uncles yeah. who have, um, you know, we're from massive families, like the Laws family, um, massive um, family there, the huge pride. So I was the first one um, to play at a senior level for the Black Sox. My younger cousin, Michael Laws, he played in the very first under-19 team that with Brutus that went away and won. Mm-hmm. Um and um, so then it was we were playing against Chinese Taipei. It was a tri series between Chinese Taipei and Japan. And my first game was at um, happened to be at Hatai Park, which is you know wow. for me in terms of um, you know uh, best park in New Zealand in terms of my spiritual home, uh, that in Porirua Park. Um, uh, and um, and then my first at bat against Chinese Taipei, nervous as hell, you know mm-hmm. I was, and um, ground rule double. And I thought, oh, this game's easy. <laughs> so no, then off I went. So it was, again, I had all my aunts and uncles there with me, um, you know, my brothers and sisters and stuff like that, and it was just a it was just a cool moment. You know, you try to you know, be the staunch downplay things and don't smile because that's not what you do when you play sport. You're not supposed to smile. You're not supposed to express how happy you are. But um, inside I was doing cartwheels. Yeah, um, and, uh, yeah, yeah Mr. Haggerson, you hear uh, saying, be classy. Yeah, and, and the thing about in terms of um, never really thought I was going to get that opportunity um, because, again, I still have these conversations with Mike Walsh now in terms of, again, Pori Rua, there was a bit of a stereotype in terms of kids coming out of Pori Rua. Um, it wasn't until Jerry Collins, in the rugby sense, um, stayed in Pori Rua that, that um, in a rugby sense, that oh, these kids from Pori Rua are pretty good players. Same with in softball is that um, we didn't um, have too many guys that made the New Zealand team because it was like you're just from Pro Rua, you know, you're just a pisshead. So yeah, you know, really take the game seriously. So, and I, I still have these these conversations with Mike every once in a while. So. <laughs> Very cool. And was Mike the coach at the time when you made the softball? Yeah, he was. He yeah. was, and uh, and it was again. Grateful to Mike, a lot, grateful to Mike for many, many reasons. And again, I'm sure we'll get to it a little later on in terms of when I, we transitioned from playing to coaching. Um, wasn't grateful to him when he actually dropped me for the 92 World Series in, <laughs> in Manila. Didn't even tell me. Um, but uh, 
Then, um, but the, the cool thing that Mike gave us, the gift that he gave us, um, Eddie and I, is that um, he gave us a collection of athletes who believe they could be world champions. And I'm sure we'll talk about that a little yeah. later on. And there's a massive difference between um, um, playing for New Zealand and actually believing you can be the best in the world. Yeah. From a playing perspective, what's some of the most memorable moments that you cherish from playing the game of softball? Um. I probably cherish um, all of my teammates, um, and that was because we grew together. We understood. We tried to understand the game together. So, and I've um, some some really awesome teammates in terms of way better than me in terms of how they could play the game, um, and then the how easily they shared their knowledge. Uh, you know, guys like. Um, Rocket, um, in terms of, I don't know if you guys come across... Um, Glenn Davies? Glenn Davies, yeah. yeah. We haven't had a chance to talk to him yet, but yeah. He's, he's one of the best softball brains I've ever I've ever come across. So I've again, he's from, he's from a softball family, and again, so Rocket was, he was, the, to me, he was the, like the true chameleon, um, in that um, if uh, whichever group he was with, you would think he was part of that group, but he could just blend um, and again, he um, he was great with with his sharing his knowledge. He was a little bit younger than me, um, a lot smarter than me. Um, but again, so shared with a lot of knowledge there. Um, and then, in term, from an actual playing side of it, it was clearly in terms of um, the the sorts of stuff that we did when the age grades with with the Michael White and Brent Stevensons of the world. Um, and then Porirua in terms of you know the the first national title for Porirua, um, the Quantel Cup. And then with PK in terms of that um, when it beating Cardinals um, in that first Lion Red series, which was, again, we were the underdogs. We weren't expected to win, but we, we managed to um, stick it together and, and, and uh, win that uh, Lion Red. Um, and yeah, anything that I did with PK, um, playing, at, um, you know, playing at, at Hotaro. The other ballpark that I actually loved was Coke Park um, and the Vic Guth. Uh, so... Tragedy when that was sold. I'm sure you know United made a lot of money when they sold Coke Park, but as a as a, a, a ballpark, there was nothing like it. And going to the Vic Guth, it was by far and away the they were way ahead of the rest of New Zealand in terms of how to put a tournament together. And um, we in Wellington just tried to copy them. Fair enough. I've heard great stories. I never got the chance to go to Coke Park, unfortunately, but I've heard lots and lots of great stories about how. That's where I hit my first home run off Kevin Hurley. Did you? At Coke Park, yeah, when I was 17. So I finally caught up to him two years later. (laughs) Was it drop ball, rise ball, rise ball over your head? I don't know what it was. I was just too excited when I hit it. (laughs) Oh, fantastic. Uh, Without a doubt. Um, Getting to go to World Cup, you got yours in Saskatoon uh, in 88. Yep. What was what was that like for you? Did you was it more pressure for you as a player? We were um, we were we went in as the defending champions, um, and because the New Zealand team had won it in '84, and that was the first time I started thinking about um, defending champions versus trying to defend it versus trying to win it. Mm-hmm. And even then, I was thinking about it as like, we're, we're not the defending champions. I wasn't in that team in 1984. We're a whole new team. Yeah. Yet everywhere you went, you had this diet of world champions, world champions, world champions. And I think that played into it a little bit in terms of, again, so I stored that away for later years. But um, uh, so there we went in there and we and um, the, the American team was stacked. Um, the Canadians were really good. The Japanese were really good. So it was essentially it was a four-team tournament. There was a bunch of other teams there. 
uh, and um, and we played um, incredible softball. We beat the Canadian. The, the we played the Americans four times. We beat them twice. They beat us twice. Um, they happened to win the last game, which was the world title game, and that was Peter Meredith came out and um, shut us out. Uh, and um, but we did. We beat them. The it was a two life final. We beat them the first game, and, mm-hmm. and again didn't quite have enough to to come back and beat them in that second game. Um, so great memories there. Um, bitterly disappointed, um, and had the attitude when when we lost, and it took me years to get over it in terms of oh, and then they gave you a medal, and it was like oh, this is what you get for losing. Um, so that was my mindset. It was our, our and pretty much the whole team's attitude because we were going there to win. Um, so we were, and it wasn't until years later after I'd finished playing that I actually sat back and reflected on that um, 1988 World Series and looked at the, the the strength of our team versus the strength of the US, and it was like. They were miles better than us, um, but it was our the way we played the game, our heart, our never give um, give up, that got us into those um, into that situation where we had we had a chance of winning, yeah, but we weren't the best team. Um, so, it, um, but still bitterly disappointed. Um, and again, the only reason I I've, um, I didn't even for years I didn't know where that medal was until we moved house, and um, and then years later someone asked me what's this thing here, and I was like, oh wow, I haven't seen that in a long time. <laughs> So, and now it's now uh, I don't put much many things out, but that's one of the few things I put out because that's a reminder in terms of hey, um, yeah, bitterly disappointed coming second, um, but we pretty much overachieved um, in coming second. Good way to look at it. I told you everything gets clearer, yeah, isn't it? Does, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. Um, your kids are playing softball uh, now. You enjoy that? Yeah, they were. Again, it's unfortunate for them. Well, well, you don't try and steer them into into the sport, but. You know, they, because there was a, I gave up um, before we had children, so I'd stopped playing. This yep. is I'm not quite the way it works now where you play till you're 50. <laughs> um, so I, I'd finished when I was about 30, 31, uh, and um, children came a little bit after that. But there was always um, things lying around the house. So they gravitated towards the sport. So, yeah, all three of them played it, uh, Mitchell, Bronte, and Georgia. Um uh, they all have a debate in terms of, you know, who's the best hitter in the family. So, you know, me being the, the, the I guess, the, the parent, yeah. you know, have to come back and say, well, Bronte's definitely the best hitter on a rise ball. You know? <laughs> George is definitely the best when it's a drop ball. Yeah. And Mitchell just crushes change-ups. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't quite, they're not quite what they're looking for. No. But they, but they, 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 they love the game. Um, they're still, uh, Mitchell's still playing. He's playing for Tawa, um, local we used to live in Papakofi, so the kids grew up with Parramatta Plim, that's where they played. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's playing with a group of his friends at Tawa. Georgia, until last year, was playing for PK. And um, Bronte gave up a few years ago. She got, um, you know, she's um, right into, um, she's architecture, so she's doing a master's in architecture and all got a little bit too hard for her. Um, but the, the, the what makes Kerry and I proud about the three kids um, is that um, they're made of the right stuff in terms of um, they'll be at every training, they'll be at every game, um, they'll put the team before others. Um, you know, Even like on the weekend I went to watch my son play and um, a couple of his better players weren't playing because they are out of the stuff, a Christmas function, and it was like, wow, what's the sport gone? <laughs> what's happened to the sport? Yeah. It's like, and I still, I mean, I've still got very good friends. Um, my friends forgive me, but their, their, their wives haven't forgiven me for not going out to their wedding. 
And it was like, well, you can't be a friend of mine if you get married in the, in the summertime. So, so, and that's that's the way it was. But but again, coming back to my kids is that um, they um, they love the sport um, and they'd be there every weekend and they'd try, try their best. Um, sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. But it never kept them away from playing the game. You know, there's that classic um, baseball um, saying that you see from movies, you know, never let the fear of striking out keep you from playing the game. Now, we adapt that to all sorts of things. When Bronte, a fly ball goes over her head, it's like, hey, never let the fear of a fly ball come in your way keep you from playing the game. <laughs> but, um, you know, so we, 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 we move that, uh, that little saying around. Yeah. <laughs> Do your kids ever win, a, win an argument with you? Oh, often. <laughs> I'd find you to be the hardest person yeah, to stop. No, 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 this, 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 you know, the key to marriage is three magic words, you know, as you wish. <laughs> Uh, you know, I've been disappointing my wife for approaching 31 years now, so. <laughs> yeah. You've got it down pack then. Yeah. Uh, fantastic. <laughs> um, mate, as you mentioned earlier, you moved to PK. You, some some great players. PK, was it also the starting of your senior coaching career? Yeah, so when I when I finished with, um, with PK, uh, Fred White, actually, um, he was – he did a really great job. Um, you know, I was done. I was living happily ever after. Um, I was about to start coaching kids, uh, and I was my work was just crazy. Um, and then, you know, Fred played the ego card. You know, it's about hey, you'd be a really good coach. You know, why don't you come and coach us. Yeah, and it was like, oh, no, nah, not really. Oh, you'd be really good at it. So, so that's how it started. And um, and if I think about in terms of the the where the Black Sox exploded. Uh, around that, um, you know, between 96, particularly after 96 through um, certainly the platform through 2000, 2004, I'd say it was um, strategically Fred was the catalyst for that because he came back from 96 and one of the first things he wanted to do was that he basically got an agreement with all of the players to say we need to play against each other more often. Um, and if we can play against each other more often, then we're going to get better. So he was the catalyst for the Auckland teams to travel to Wellington and the Wellington teams to travel to Auckland. Um, you know, tragically for the Hawks Bay, he was the catalyst for Thomas Markier to come out of the Hawks Bay and come to PK, for Jared Martin to come and play for PK. Um, again, it was like, how do we get the better players so that we can actually play against each other a bit more often? So that was Fred, and Fred got me into coaching. Um, and I was I was just a spare parts coach in terms of I coached initially when, uh, when Stoddy couldn't coach, um, so I filled in. Um, and uh, then when Stoddy went off to, when he was with um, the New Zealand team, um, then I started coaching full-time for a few years. And then I went straight from there and into the Black Sox after that. When, when, did, when do you feel the switch turned, or was there a, 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 a moment where the switch turned from being a coach that's at the Premier level, but then thinking, actually, I can do this really well, and I've got aspirations to take it to the highest level possible? Never, um, there was an opportunity that came up in terms of so they um, so Stoddy was appointed after Mike Walsh and uh, Mike was being part of you know, the Black Sox forever, mm. um, and then um, after '96 when the Black Sox were just incredible in terms of dominating the the um, uh, dominating the, um, World Softball in, in that World Series in, in Michigan, uh, then Mike started working for it might have been like um, Sport New Zealand or something like that back in the day, and then it was like, hey, you can't do both. Um, or maybe work for Softball New Zealand. I'm not sure how it worked. So then, uh, so then Mike stepped away. Stoddy came in, 
Uh, and then after a few years, they opened it up again. And uh, I didn't actually, um, there wasn't an aspiration of me to coach the national team. And then it was just like, well, kids are really little. If I'm going to do it, it's going to be now. And if, if I wait for another four years, the kids will be at a different age. I probably won't do it. And then that's how it started. In terms of, and then I just decided to apply. Um, and then I got the job, and then it was like, and it got real in a, in a in a hurry. Yeah, yeah, it would indeed. If you were to categorise or describe your coaching style back then, how would you describe it? Um, I would um, describe it as uh, you've just used the word there in terms of um, um, churning through the complex and keeping it really simple. Um, um, working with the, um, the players to figure out um, how we're going to play the game. So it's a player's game. It's, um, and I'd say that in terms of from a very early age, I, I would have been into empowerment in terms of um, working with the players to figure out what we're trying to do. So when I first started coaching um, the Black Sox, uh, again, and Mike was a fantastic coach, uh, and we had some really, really good teams. But one thing I, one thing I always tried to figure out was that we never spent a lot of time building the team. We just had a collection of really good guys who just happened to all come together. So, um, and then I've seen teams that um, where things under pressure unravel. So when I first started coaching the Black Sox, it was about, um, you know, the mindset was we need to build the team before the game. Uh, and that's what I've, what I've always brought to coaching in terms of understanding who we are, what's our identity, what are we trying to do, what's important to us and why is it important to us. What's my role, um, and um, and what do I need from others to execute my role? Um, so we went through exercises there where we broke it right down in terms of uh, each position, um, very clearly defined um, whose role it is, because what we wanted to do is that we didn't want to waste any time when someone dropped the ball, because when someone drops the ball, we want company, um, so we want to blame someone else, and we wanted to make it so clear who dropped the ball, we didn't waste any time in you know, that, that self-pity phase, and we just got straight back to, okay, we need to pick the ball up again and start again. Um, and that's why we, we, we were quite, um, um, put, um, I guess, very particular in terms of how we define those roles. Uh, and um, and that, uh, that was, the, the, again, the catalyst in terms of how we wanted to play the game. And then we started talking about how we want to defend the game. Uh, so what's how are we going to defend the short game? How are we going to, what does cuts look like? And we had, you know, Aucklanders who who were pretty extra, extravagant in those days in terms of um, how they wanted to do cuts. Mm. And then I'd look at it and say, making it too complicated. Um, and then we just simplified it. We got buy-in and off we go. And then offensively, how we want to play the game offensively. Um, and then so the players would define all that sort of stuff. My role was to poke and probe and, and look for holes and have you thought about this, have you thought about that? And then once we'd figured all that stuff out, and that's, that's who we are, that's how we're going to play the game. So then my role and Eddie's role um, and Chubb's role, who was uh, coaching with us in terms of, okay, we create the environment to um, enable that to, to work. And then, you know, years later, again, you talk about simplifying it. It's like, what, what's what's it really all about? Is that, um, wish I knew it now in terms of, um, well, then what I know now is that we were trying to create an environment that empowered our people to be extraordinary. And if I think about what are we doing rugby and what are we doing at the Padres, that's all we're trying to do. If we can get the environment right that empowers our people to be extraordinary and our people are our players, our support staff, um, then we're going to be pretty tough to beat. Um, and if we don't get that environment right, right, then people aren't going to be extraordinary and we're going to be disappointed. The team that you took over, 96, World Champs, 
Um, was there many players from that 96 that retired? Because I've I got a question around this. You, 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 you ended up putting a fine-tooth comb through the Black Sox and asking them a lot of questions why. Was there some kickback from some of the athletes saying, well, wait a minute, we're already world champions. I don't need to do this. No, would, um, there was a, a, a decent sort of um, handing over of the torch. I and mean, we had the, the, the nucleus of the team was there, um, absolutely. But what we, what, um, what we brought to it again is the first thing I'd talk to them is that I congratulated the 96 um, team because they're the world champions. And that's the last time we're going to be um, referred to as the world champions because we're not the world champions. That team was. Brutus, you are the world champion in that team. You're not a world champion in this team. So we're about winning the world the, the world championship for the very first time. So that's what we're about. Um, so that's where we started, um, and that's where um, you know, we did. Um, we didn't have two cents to rub together, um, but um, that didn't get in the way of everything that we needed to. We were by far and away the best prepared team going to South Africa for that World Series. How did you achieve that with no budget? Uh, well, again, and so back in the day, again, you come back to 2000 or, yep. or 98, 2000, it was the 2000 Olympics coming up. Mm-hmm. So you think about the sport of softball. Um, so um, the focus was the Olympics. So Softball New Zealand, we didn't have the resource to, to, um, to work across both programs. So they focused on the women's program. Um, we focused on, the, uh, on our program. We, um, we created, um, you know, the Black Sox brand that guys walk around with the fern and mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. Is that... Um, uh, myself and a mate of mine um, designed that at Christmas time. Um, so we got who was a graphic designer. We sat down and said, "Hey, we need to do something." Mm-hmm. So that little thing you got up on the wall that um, happened at Christmas time with a mate of mine who was a graphic designer. And so, what are we trying to do? I said, "We need something with a ball. We need something with a fern, um, with the black socks." And then that's that's the, his creative genius that came up with that fern. Wow. Um, so uh, we um, we all of our tours um, we negotiated parents' money to offset our costs. So we would cut deals. So in Softball New Zealand wouldn't do it. We had to do it all. So we built all the relationships, cut deals. Um, we uh, we were still had the uniforms we were wearing were the team were the uniforms that were worn in Manila in 1992. <laughs> um, so it was really cool that you could talk about, hey, Mike Nichols bled in this uniform yep. and all the rest of it because it was literally it was true. Um, but you know we wanted to have our guys looking pretty cool. So then what we started doing is we started writing letters to um, Rawlings. Who are a big manufacturer yeah. and um, and talking about telling them who we are and what we're about and hey we'd be a pretty good team to get behind and any chance of giving us four uniforms sets of uniforms thinking that if we're lucky we might get one well, yeah. we got four sets of uniforms no um, way um, so we even got a blue one which we didn't quite know we didn't want a blue one but <laughs> we managed to get we managed to get a fifth one out of them yeah uh, and uh, and that was on the back again of of um, we had a, a a great guy that was Rawlings in New Zealand he helped us set it all up. And then off we went. Um, we then had to build a relation, relationship with Shut. Um, so all our helmets came from Shut. So we went to an ISC in '98. Eddie and I were at the ISC, and we were um, we were um, meeting all the, the guys. We got uh, we got the guys all bats with um, back in the day were Easterns were the the main bats. So we talked to Easton. We got bats. So and that was just all in the back of um, we did it all ourselves. Um, and then we decided that we wanted to. We named our World Series team, and we wanted to do a team building exercise. Um, we went out and we checked a few things out in terms of someone came back and said, yeah, that'll cost you 30000 I was like, oh, we haven't got 30000 So the company I work for, Comtex, had a ski lodge in Awakuni. So well, we go, they gave us that for the weekend for free. Um, uh, Grant McCarroll, the manager of the Black Sox, um, was um, with the New Zealand Army. So we got Army vans to drive the boys to, to Awakuni. 
Um, we um, we did a lot of work, uh, team building stuff with the uh, New Zealand Army, and um, and the reason that again we partnered up with the Army is that um, they've been in the business of building serious teams for generations. We just build teams to play sport, uh, so it was like their their whole setup is about teamwork and about removing all those. Um, um, things that get in the way of a team like you know back in those days is that if you had two guys in a room the conversation would stop once you figured out who's got the remote um, so by staying in this key lodge, ski lodge there was no remote so then what do you do if you can't watch tv you actually talk to each other you actually do what you guys are doing you understand everyone's story understand the uniqueness of where people are from what's what's important to them or why is it important to them and then we created opportunities with the army to do things that scared the shit out of the guys. Um, <laughs> like, like completely what? safe. Oh, we were abseiling down cliffs. We were doing, I mean, Dean Rice, he's probably still going down this cliff into a cave. Um, and uh, he was, he's very fast, Dean, yeah. but not when he was abseiling down this cliff. <laughs> um, and, then we, and then some really cool things that happen in terms of T-building um, activities where we go into a cave and we're caving through this with um, um, with the army guys, and um, you know they had they did not to this group that have candles and matches, and then you'd go into the caves and further in, and then carry your hands in the story. These are the stories that would come out afterwards. Would be knocking his head and he goes, "Shit, I wish we had matches." And then Nathan Nukunuka, who was new in the team, says, "Oh, I've got some matches." What? Why didn't you tell us that before? <laughs> oh, I've got candles too. So, so then they write that like the match and the candle, and then off it goes. But that's again the, uh, that was a great learning for us in terms of Nathan. You you had some information that was going to help your team um, get through this dark period and then work your way through the cave. Why was it that you chose not to share that information? So we leveraged off all that type of stuff in terms of again we we're really grateful to the army to to create that environment and some of the stuff that came out of it was just gold. And what we had was we had shared experiences that were based in laughter so that when things in South Africa got a bit dire, we could tell those same stories again because we were all there together and we could remember it. And off we'd go, we'd start laughing and off we'd go again. The story about South Africa at the World Cup and uh, turning up with the accommodation being, um, well, for some international teams, let's call it subpar. Um, but New Zealand staying there and... Um, one of the stories that came out of that, that for us as fans was, we may not be the best athletes, but we're the best team. And that's why we feel that New Zealand wins uh, championships. Would that be a fair comment? Yeah, it'd be absolutely fair. And that is that um, yeah, we um, we knew exactly what we were going to. We, we, were, we were determined to, to win a World Series. Uh, and, um, and we were determined to win it for the very first time, like I shared with you. Uh, we knew what we were going into. We sent Grant McCarroll, um, again, we managed to bludge some dough, and Grant went across to South Africa about two months out from the World Series. We leveraged off the Hurricanes a lot, who travelled to the South Africa, and, this, and they their advice to us is don't go there too early. Do a, a scouting trip, um, but go there like a couple of months before the World Series because everything changes so quickly. So Grant went there. There were about three types of, we stayed in high schools, um, and there were three high schools. There was a really flash one. There was a not-so-good one, and then there was a really shitty one. So Grant, you know, using his best negotiation skills, came back and says, we're sweet boys. We're in the flash one. We're in the palace. <laughs> so Grant, of course, was staying in a palace with the guy who was organising the tournament, and he, he showed us all these videos of all the flash places he went to. And then we go back over there, and it was like, we didn't stay in the palace. You know, we stayed in the last one. 
but we sort of we were prepared for it and and yeah. I, I've often said that if we knew that we were um, staying and had to stay in a tent we would have prepared ourselves to stay in the tent because where you sleep at night does not determine whether you're successful on the softball field it's um, it's that's got nothing to do with your preparation if you knew what it was about you'd prepare for it and then that won't get in the way of success and that's pretty much the way that we um, we we approached it you know, and we had some fun there we had the Australians with us for about three days and then they left. Um, couldn't handle it um, and you know Paul Alga yells at them they just lost their first game at the World Series and Paul Alga still yells at them and said boys it's not a knockout you, know, you don't go home after the first game and then the Americans and the Canadians of course would try and take the piss out of us so then we would turn tables on them and we'd just lie we'd say oh no 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 staying in that motel World Softball is so grateful to us they've given us gloves bats and all sorts of stuff you know like oh for God's sake these guys, start, how can they? How can they come out smelling of roses, even though they're staying in this horrible place? <laughs> but again, it was like, and this is the, the the cool thing about softball, is that our ability to connect is that we connected with um, the, the the staff that ran the the, um, the hostel they were in, um, and um, you know, we were incredibly well looked after. Uh, we went to a um, um, an outlying village. And uh, there was a fair bit of apprehension going out there. We were going to be there for you know, 30 minutes, 40 minutes. Uh, and we didn't know what it was about. And that was the most humbling experience I've ever had in sport. And that is that you go there and you look at these kids. Um, they had absolutely nothing but a smile. Um, so, And our guys loved it. I mean, uh, so we spent hours out there. Uh, and it almost took us for forever to drag them off into the bus to go back to the to the accommodation before we started the World Series. Um, so everything that we did there was about um, that team. And I still remember our very first, um, right before opening ceremony, and you talked about um, mind games earlier, is that we went for our last training um, uh, the night before the World Series was about to start, and we were ready. Um, so we get to this big field and the Japanese have been training for about three hours before us and they were going to be like the tough competition there. So then we walked past the Japanese and we walked like um, New Zealanders walked and we had the saying in terms of it's a blanket, you could throw a blanket over us and we walked really slowly and we did it very deliberately because they tracked us all the way across to the other side of the field. And then we got there and we got our cleats on and we threw the ball around for about five minutes and I said to the boys, we were supposed to train for an hour or so and I said, we're done. Okay, um, cleats off, get your shoes on, and we walk past the Japanese again. Um, they trained for another four hours. Um, and the message that we tried to give to them is to say, we're ready. And then what we did in doing that is that we put doubt in their minds because they were asking themselves, are we ready? Um, we're going to work even harder. And then that, again, we had uh, we did everything that was, we did things differently at that World Series. We had um, Dean Rice um, and Dion Nukunuk who came up with our pre-game routines. And um, uh, it was all about, in terms of back in the day, it was about grids and about um, noise, high activity, but no one had ever seen it before. And then we would walk in. Uh, so then you'd typically get uh, the game before, was just about to finish, so the team would go around into their side of the dugout and ready to jump the fence when the game was over. We stayed in behind the centre field fence, and then we would walk through centre field. And then we would walk to either the first base or the third base dugout in a really tight group. And what we did every time we did it, the team that we we're playing against stopped what they were doing and they watched us. And and again, it was that with our mindset was to say, hey, they're watching us. We're going to bring the show here. So and then off we'd go to our dugout and then we get ready to play. I've heard that comment a number of times, uh, Damien, of uh, athletes from from different parts of the world 
saying how the first time they ever saw the Black Sox, how they looked, how they walked, um, their their uniform, everything was matching and tidy and stuff like that it was a memory that they kept the first time they saw the Sox and now we know why. That 2000 team as well. So we um, you're talking about we got the uniforms out of Rawlings. So that didn't stop there. Um, a good mate of mine um, ran the Canterbury stores in Wellington. Uh, so go to him and I say, come on, mate, how about you give us everything at cost? So um, so we cut a deal with him. To, yeah. So then um, so then it was my wife and Grant McCarroll's wife or, or partner at the time. They were our outfitting commi- um, committee, basically, because yeah. I got no taste, apparently. <laughs> um, so, so they, my wife went off and um, went through the store and um, sorted everything out for the guys. And I still remember the guys would look at that, would give hand the gear out, and they go, "Oh man, this is the." They, they used to say things like, "This is the Mickey." Yeah. I've never seen this before. And then we'd give them something. Oh, this is the double Mickey. <laughs> so then off it would go, and and. Uh, you know, and a lot of that stuff is I don't have it anymore, but I still see a few of the guys still wear some of that stuff from two thousand. It was, and it was all we got. My mate up there, everything that we did was um, there was graphically designed yep. for us, um, so there was uniqueness about it. Um, and that's the sad part is that I don't think there's there's a lot of people in softball that actually understand where that thing came from, and that's that's part of sort of like if I think about it in terms of our legacy, is um, you know some very smart people and some very very cool people um, put that together. And then we had we ch- we were challenged with the back in the day with um, black um, you know black socks um, white socks, and um, and what they wanted to do was just replace um, black with white, and we wouldn't let them do it. And the reason for that is to say you need to def- define your own, own identity. You can take that stuff, but you can't just replace black with white. Is yeah. that you've got you've got no skin in the game, so it's not going to mean anything to you. This meant a lot to those guys because uh, we spent a lot of time. And again, once we designed it. Um, then I'd push it out to four or five guys and say, how can we make it better? Um, so then we got player input and stuff like that. So then it became our, we created it. So, and that was what was pretty cool about it as well. Pretty cool indeed. Don Tricker sharing the insights of what it's like to be one of the best coaches in the world. And of course, our Black Sox coaching, we're up to 2000 in East London. Coaching at your first World Cup, you obviously uh, talked about trying to psychologically win some battles against some of these teams before you even take the diamond. What type of coach were you leading into a big match at a World Cup? Were you the, I, I can't get any sleep, I'm going to be watching film all night? Yeah. Um, again, I'll come back to, you know, you talked about how I how I reflect on, on experiences. It took me two tournaments to figure out how the media worked. Um, the first Two of that, I went. We went away. We won our first tournament, and the media went after the players. The second, the next week, we lost. <laughs> they came after me, <laughs> and I was like, oh, "Okay, so this is how it works." Um, <laughs> but the other thing, the other really cool learning for me in that tour, that was uh, it was nineteen ninety eight. It was in um, we were in Canada at the time in, in Victoria. Was that um, I was a nervous wreck, uh, and I was um, essentially living every pitch. Uh, and I was not, um, I don't think I was adding any value to the team. Uh, and then I thought about it, and I thought, I need to change this. The reason I need to change it, because if I keep on doing what I'm doing, I'm probably going to die of stress. So then what I did was that um, I did a little bit of an exercise where it was a bit of a role play um, before we went out to play. 
and I put myself in a, a in a mindset where I didn't give a shit what happened out there. We'd done the preparation, we'd completed the prep, and whatever happened happened. And then from that moment, um, I became a lot more effective um, for the team. I was present, so I was in the moment. I wasn't trying to work ahead, go ahead in terms of what's going to happen next and stuff like that. Um, and um, I was, enjoyed it. Uh, and but if I hadn't have been able to do that, I don't think I would have lasted. Um, and then that's still what I've always done. Even now, when I'm watching baseball and or, or when I'm watching the All Blacks play, it was like it was. It is what it is. These guys in the middle there, they're gonna they're gonna either win or we're gonna lose. Yeah. Um, and whichever way it works is that we're gonna learn from it, we're gonna be tougher next time out. Um, and that was the pretty much the mindset I had um, going in there. You mentioned through that so through that tournament, you almost didn't even make the playoffs. Yeah, we um, What was the moment? Well we had um, we we played uh, we won our section and then we crossed over and we played, did we win our section? We must have won it. We played the Japanese um, and then they beat us one zip. Um, they were a really, really good team. Um, Nishimura was their stud um, pitcher uh, and he just blew us away. So that put us into the bracket where um, one loss and we were out of the tournament. And then we were playing, um, uh, so the Americans and the and uh, the Japanese had gone through to like the final of the winners bracket, and yep. then ourselves and the Canadians came through. Uh, so we're playing Canada, and uh, we ended up beating them. I think three to one. Uh, it was um, it would have been you know Marty was dominating them until about the fifth or the sixth inning, and then there's a few chinks started to appear, a few base runners, and they had a couple of guys on, and they had a had had a hitter up, and um, you know. What it would have taken would have been a you know a big hit, a home run. Um, then it's four three to the Canadians, and we're probably out. Uh, but you know, Marty you know, um, maintained his poise. We got out of the inning, um, and then that created the opportunity to go off. And we then played the Americans the following day. But that was where it was like, and that's the the, the uniqueness of the sport of softball is that there is no other sport like it. Well, there's baseball and softball, no other sport like it. In every other sport, you can run the clock down. When you're ahead, you can slow the game down. In rugby, you can just hold on to the ball when you can waste five minutes. In basketball, you can um, you can you know use your your shot clock. Um, but in softball, you got to get 21 outs, uh, so you can't close the game out. So, and that's where and often the last three outs are the hardest to get, and that's where the pressure goes on. And that's what you try and condition your team is to execute the basics under pressure. And that was, if we wanted to say in terms of what was going to be our identity, if people were going to look back at us and say, what was it about that Black Sox team? What do we want them to be saying about us? One is that as we're walking through the airports, um, we wanted people to be saying, these guys know what they're about. These guys look sharp. These guys, these guys are legit. Um, and then uh, when we play the game, it was like, they just execute the basics. If the ball's hit at them, they catch it and they throw it across. There's nothing flash about them. Um, so we wanted to be that team. We didn't want to be the flash team. We wanted to be the team that just executed under pressure. Um, and that was pretty much the way it worked for us until we got to the championship game. Um, and I know you've had Thomas um, Mark here on the couch. Did yep. he ever tell you what happened when he won the scored the winning run in that World Series? In two thousand, no, no. Marty tell us. So, so we're okay. So I'll, I'll replay it for you. So yeah. we're um, Marty Grant is blowing the Japanese down, but um, there was a misplayed ball in left field. Um, ended up being a a, a triple. Um, next guy um, gets a fly ball 
1-0 to Japan. Nishimura is just mowing us down, and we think, oh, man, this is going to be tough. Jared Martin ties it up in about the fourth or the fifth um, uh, on a home run, um, and, um, and up until then, we weren't even touching Nishimura. Uh, and then uh, in the top of the seventh, um, we managed to get Thomas to third with um, uh, less than um, one out. I think they walked um, Taifau. Um, so Taifau is on first, and we replaced him with Nathan Nukunuku. So Nathan's on first, um, Thomas is on third. Donna Howe was up to up the bat. Um, at this stage, they're taking Nishimura out. Thank um, God for that. Um, <laughs> and then Donny just crushes one, goes to the warning track. So it's like, oh, great. Thomas is going to score. Marty's going to get three outs, and we're going to be the world champions. So I'm on third base, getting pretty pumped about this. Thomas is two metres towards home plate before the ball gets caught. Oh. So, uh, and then then the Thomas then scampers back, touches third base, and then runs home. By the time he left third base, the ball was already back in the infield. But the Japanese guy who took the cut was looking at, at Nathan because Nathan recognised what happened. So he drew this guy's um, play. Um, and then Larry scores at home. If the guy and the guy didn't know that Larry hadn't scored because everyone would have thought anyone watching the game or knew the game Larry was going to score just you know he could walk home, yeah. um, but uh, and that's the thing that pressure does to people um, under pressure um, crazy things happen um, and that's that's um, how we um, we won that um, we, we got that winning run. And then Marty... You were at third base at this stage where he's off the bag. I was, trim, I was doing my nut. Yeah. I, I don't normally do my nut, but I was like, Larry, 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 Larry. <laughs> and, then he, and, then, and then he knew what he'd done. Yeah. And then off he goes back and then, then off then he runs off. and then takes off. But uh, again, if they had caught the ball and thrown the ball, Larry would have been out by three metres. Wow. Um, so that was our winning run. And then you think, oh, sweet, Marty's going to mow them down. He walks the first guy. <laughs> so there's a runner on one, none out. And we thought, oh, here we go. Um, and then we practiced. We practiced plays. So we practice. Um, and the Japanese played the game. They're quite linear in terms of, again, so they're going from first base to second base. So they play one base at a time. So we practice um, a ground ball to second base. Um, we practice, and Nathan, um, sorry, Dion Nukunuku is an exceptional ball player. He practices making contact with the base runner. We practiced everything. We practiced um, uh, pass balls. We practiced everything that could go on in a game. So we would rec- so when it happened um, in a game, it was like we've done this before. So what happened is we got runner on one, none out. Um, the guy hits a ground ball to to Dion. It's second. Uh, there's no way that Dion is going to get the lead out. Um, so we're going to get the out at first, and there's going to be a guy at uh, second base with one out. So diff- very diff- different context. Dion comes in um, and creates hits contact, and the guy runs into him. So we get the guy out at second. Um, so then the scenario went from runner on two, one out, to runner on one, one out. Massive, massive change. So, you know, I'm out there trying to um, negotiate a double play and almost yeah. got it, yeah. uh, but didn't quite get it. Uh, but um, you know, funny stories about umpires, because <laughs> my you know, But so so then Marty goes off and strikes the next two guys out. We're world champions. Um, but again, if it wasn't for that um, um, that awareness of Dion, and also we've actually practiced it. Uh, so it wasn't like it was he wasn't pulling something out of his back pocket. He'd actually practiced it, and it was like and, and the Japanese did exactly what we thought they'd do. 
and uh, the guy would just be going from first to second. He would have no awareness of where where uh, Nooks was. Um, he was just going to second base, and that was a hell of a heads up play. So that's again where we're an, an example of we executed under the under pressure. So the half inning before we didn't, um, and then but we did the following. So what Larry did was um, you know Larry's probably one of the best pl- players ever played the game. Yeah, under pressure, even he uh, makes a fundamental mistake. And coming back to umpires, I mean, our guys, and when we try and play the game like softball, and I, I might have talked to you about it before, is that the uniqueness of New Zealand playing the game is that um, we don't, we did, back in those days in particular, we didn't play it as wannabe baseballers. So we didn't, we weren't um, trying to, um, if, if, they, if one of their guys hits our guys, then our pitcher has to hit their guy. That's what our guys still wanted to do, but that's because they, they've been playing in the States, and it was like, why would we create momentum for the other team? What hurts more? Being drilled in the back or a loss? Mm. It's like, let's let's win games. And I remember there was a play at second base, uh, and um, our guys were up on the fence. It went against us. It could have gone either way. And, uh, and our guys were on the, um, raging up and down on the on the dugout. Marty was, was the worst of them, and he was demanding that I go out and then just rip the shit out of this umpire. Yeah, um, I went to a coaching symposium. You shared this story with me. Uh, I love the story. <laughs> so I cruise out there, not having a you know, charged out there, and then I get out there, and this guy was massive. He was about six five. He's an American, so he's probably been abused as an umpire all his life. <laughs> and he was waiting for it, and I'll go out there and says, "Hey, mate, what did you see?" And he was starting to tell me, he's "Look, I'm just out here because my guys think I, I need to come out here and give you a give you a hard time." So he told me what he what he saw, and I said, "Look, I'll back any decision you make, mate." But any chance of pointing your finger at me? So he points his finger at me. So a little bit more, ex- you know, a little bit animated than that. Gave me one of these. I went okay. And then I charged back into the dugout. The guys loved me. I thought you just went out there. You stuck up for us. You ripped that guy apart. But all I was doing is that I was never going to get him to change his mind. But I was making a play for the next play. As yep. to say, hey, let's do it respectfully, and it might go our way next time around. Oh, so good. Very clever. That was actually the the, the, the tidbit that you'd passed on in this coaching symposium we had uh, here in Wellington many, many years ago, and I've taken that story and passed it on so many times. Um, and I used it on Ginge one year too. I think it was at the PK Classic or something. He'd missed someone leaving early. I came out of the dugout because the guys were all upset, something like that. And uh, I said to Ginge, I said, look, I'm, I'm just going to wave my hands up and down here, shake my head at you, and I turn around and go back to the dugout. He's like, thanks. <laughs> then walk back. And then, as you just said, a couple of calls with the game afterwards are all going our way. So I've I've never known an umpire <laughs> to make to change his mind in a, in yeah. a judgment call like that. So it's like, and and that's the thing is like, so whenever I'd go out and talk to an umpire, um, my strategy was to get another umpire involved. That's all it was. And if I got another umpire involved, then we, then we might have a chance. Yeah. Um. So that's all I'd do. So when again, it's like and. Sometimes you feel like you're a bit of a bush lawyer, like there would be something at the plate and the guy would say, um, oh, no, I heard the foul tip. So, oh, so you didn't see it. Maybe that guy at second base saw it. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, he goes, oh, next thing you know, the guy at second base comes in. So, yeah. Now, you know why I asked him, uh, does his kids even win an argument? Because I don't know how you stop this guy, that's for sure. But you win on uh, uh, in South Africa there, uh, and you know the stories that have come back from it. As we talk about the accommodation, uh, but you now give us insight on how you did things there on the ground. Um, for once, our softball team, our softball coach, gets recognised when they come back to New Zealand. You get the Halberg uh, Coach of the Year. 
that year uh, in 2000. How important is that? Oh, massively important for the game. But again, it, it's, that was a massive surprise. Mm. But our recognition wasn't a surprise. And that was because we created it. So we had a very gifted um, person who um, was part of the media, um, Andrea Blackshaw. Uh, and Andrea worked with us. Andrea did an enormous amount of work to, that, to create um, um, copy for all the all the um, the journalists around the country. And of course, it's like you're in the in the, in the media. If someone gives you a story and it's all written for you, what are you going to do? You're going to present Absolutely. it. So, so <laughs> we created a lot of our own press through Andrea. So we went waiting for the New Zealand media to get on our back um, through Andrea's connections and contacts and her, and her um, in terms of her savvy, is that um, she um, created something um, that the rest of the New Zealand media wanted to jump on. And then we had guys like Murray Deeker who got in behind us as well, because again we were the underdog. Yeah, uh, and 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 then so again and and uh, we were good enough again to uh, to be humble, uh, but to recognise the massive opportunity for the sport. And it's like, and I'm incredibly proud New Zealander, and and incredibly proud of to have the opportunity to um, go to a World World Series with with many many um, incredible New Zealanders. And I just and, and I knew this story. I just wanted others to hear this story, and that was the start of it in terms of. And again, then it got completely. We got went to another level again where we had the World Series in Christchurch, but it wouldn't have happened without Andrea Blackshaw. Uh, and we got and again, I, th I think we got um, we got. Um, yeah, we were unfortunate. Every time we go for the Hellbergs, it's always the Olympics. Olympics. Uh, so you know, it was a massive surprise that, that I got recognised. Um, but what that wasn't what we wanted. We wanted the the team of the year. Yeah. But then again, it's like so. Um, again, so backstory there is that um, I took my gold medal to the the Hobart Awards that year uh, because um, a few years earlier the team didn't didn't really handle it very well. When in '96 they were a dominant team, had a pretty good shot at winning the team of the year, and it might have been a, they might have got tipped out by oh, Team New Zealand. I think won it that, that year. So that was pretty. I might have been the All Blacks. So it's mm. pretty hard yeah. to beat the, one of those teams. And I don't think we, um, um, the team, uh, covered themselves in glory. So again, I remember we got together before we went in, and, and we did again some things uh, different. Is that we wanted our partners to go, so we because we wanted it to be an experience, a celebration of sports. So we worked pretty hard to get our um, our significant significant others to to join us. But I bring my little gold medal out to say no one can take this away from us. Whatever happens in there happens in there, but this is what matters. So let's uh, keep ourselves grounded. If we happen to be successful, that's going to be incredible. If we're not, who cares? It's just what other people think. What what really matters is the people that we love um, know that we're not idiots. We worked our asses off, and um, and we did something extraordinary. That's what matters. Yeah. I love that. Well, I love the New Zealand, and we're going we're gonna to get to this, especially around 2004, how the New Zealand public adopted the Black Sox because we're this, I'm sure, great team in New Zealand, but we're such a small sport, a sporting nation in the world, and yet three-peat was going to be the end result in 2004, but we don't know that until we get to the end of it. i got a question leading into 2004, uh, um, and that is... When you've got all those athletes 
as the coach or coaching staff, how do you make the hard call to release players? Um, first and foremost, your your mindset is that you know you've got to do what's right for the team. Uh, and and if I think about um, that, and if I think about what's the difference between um, a performance athlete and a lifestyle athlete, a performance athlete will change what they want to do for what's right for the team. A lifestyle athlete will change what the team wants to do for what's right for them. So that's the that's the crossover. Once we had players who started to go from performance to lifestyle, then that was time to move them on. Um, and then there would be uh, there would be conversations with them. So it wouldn't be a surprise. I mean, I was I was brutal to to Bevan Martin um, between two thousand and two thousand and four. Um, and uh, and in 2000, uh, or actually leading into 2000, when Bev, you say brutal, do you mean a non-selection? No, I didn't select Bevan um, until the World Series team. So I was, we, we were really, um, I was brutally honest with Bevan and I say, like, love him as a person, um, but I want to try and at the moment we had Mark Sorensen, um, we had Bevan Martin, and we didn't have an awful lot of depth after that. And it was like Bevan, I want to create depth. Um, I'm not going to leave Mark Sorensen behind. Um, so to create depth, to try and bring Patrick Shannon on and the like, is that um, we can't, well, I won't be selecting you. Um, but if you're the best catch, your best, you're, you're in our top two catchers, um, come when we name the team, you'll be named. Um, so we created opportunities for Patrick. Patrick didn't quite, um, um, uh, wasn't quite ready for the 2000 team and Bevan was selected. Bevan was by far and away our most valuable player in South Africa. Um, if you, you talk Why? about in terms of well, you, you're looking for um, someone who do, who's who's all about selfless acts. So if I was to say in terms of again, and I've often said this, if I was to draw a picture of of the Black Sox, I'd draw Bevan Martin because he was selfless. Um, he knew that he was um, he was the backup catcher. I mean, Mark Sorensen was the catcher, so Mark Sorensen was going to play. Um, so, and when Bevan played, I mean, Bevan was a really good player. Yeah. So when Bevan played, he never let us down. He just didn't provide the offense that um, a Mark Sorensen could provide. So leading into, again, so if, if anyone needed to do any extra work, I didn't have to do it. Bevan was out there. So if someone wanted ground balls, Bevan would be hitting ground balls. If someone wanted um, BP and our playing fields out where we were starting, Bevan would be pitching BP to them. Um then we get to uh, the last day, and Mark tweaks a hamstring because you know he's broken down a little bit. Um, <laughs> so, and again, proactively, Bevan steps up and he goes, "Brutus, you just get ready to catch the first pitch. I've got everything else." So he gets the pitches ready, hands them over to Brutus, and Brutus just does what he has to do. Um, so, and that's with with Bevan in terms of again, it was um, he was. Phenomenal, um, and um, we wouldn't have won that World Series without Bevan, because again, it's like he was the soul of the team, and um, and every team needs that. So when when it's time to move on, and if you're the soul of the team, then that's that's pretty tough. But again, you need to manage that through. So you know, between 2000 and 2004, we had guys like um, um, or Brutus moving. Between again, another one I come back to, um, Dion Nukunuku. Um, between 96 and 2000, Dion wasn't sure if he wanted to go back to World Series because it's really hard to win. 
It's, it's like if you want to climb Mount Everest, it's like, you know, you can do it once and then you think, man, that was pretty cool, but man, that was really hard. And then you got to do it again. It's like, do I really want to go through all that pain? So the way that we sort of, um, we got Dion excited again is that I'm sitting at breakfast one day with them and, you know, the guys are chumping around and I said, you know what? No one's ever won back-to-back World Series. Not since the very first when the, when the Americans won in, I think it was 66 and 68. And then I walked away. <laughs> and then you could see a, the mind starting. <laughs> yeah. And that was the catalyst for Dion to go, you know, that'd be really cool. And then, of course, it was pretty easy with a three-peat type thing. And then the Brutus thing, there's a lot of stuff written about Brutus um, coming back and playing in 2004 because he'd retired. Uh, we retired his number. We did all that American stuff. Yeah. Uh, and he deserved it. I mean, yeah. he's a legend. Uh, and then we, um, he was still playing in the States. Wasn't playing in New Zealand, but playing in the States. Yeah, I want to hear um, the story because I made a comment this week that I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse after The Godfather. <laughs> How did it shake down? I just said to him, I just said to again, planted the seed with Brutus. Is the Brutus, there's no doubt you're the, you're, you know, you're the best player that, that's, you know, arguably that, that's worn the Black Sox um, uniform, but you'd never won in New Zealand. And that was it. And that was about 18 months before I'd, because um, I knew it. I just play, played it. And, then, and I knew he's thinking and thinking and thinking. Yeah. And then I go, and then he comes back and says, okay, you ready? He goes, yeah, I'm ready. And that was pretty much all I took. Um, <laughs> And then off we went. Because, again, it was like, it was, and that was the cool thing for us, and that was our, our theme for that World Series, is that we'd proven um, to be pretty good um, winning in obscure parts of the world where no one else is paying us, or New Zealand, the New Zealand public's paying us no attention. We've been pretty good at doing that. We, we've, never, we've never had the opportunity to win in New Zealand where we're like the only show in town. And it's like, so that was like, we've, and in those days, it was like, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. It was New Zealand hadn't had the World Series since 76. Mm. So the likelihood was going to be another 20 years or whatever it is. So it's going to be another generation before it comes back to New Zealand. So it was like, hey, can we really win when, when we are the only show in town, when the pressure's really on? Or are we just that team that can only win in obscure parts of the world when no one gives a toss? And that was that was how we started to build that team. What, what Playing on home soil with that, with that pressure... Uh, an expectation, uh, twice world champs. Um, how, how do you find a solution? How do you prepare a team, as you mentioned right at the beginning, about getting your athletes to be extraordinary at the right time? Yeah, again, pretty easy. And it's a four-letter word. It's called love. Uh, so, you know, we had some, um, uh, how do you put it, in terms of you know, some bad luck going into that World Series in terms of losing Marty. Uh, but yeah. we get to the opening ceremony um, and we walk around the stadium and it was like, can you feel it, boys? Can you feel that love? And we were loved. Uh, so And, and the, again, the guys were just, like, they were just super determined. Um, we had, uh, again, another initiative of ours is that we wanted to have our families, we wanted our players to know where their families were. So we negotiated with the um, um, the organising committee to have a little wee stand in left field and say that's where they're going to be. So whenever you know if, if things you want to connect with your family, just you know where to look. Uh, so and that was the whole thing about in terms of again it was like you know feel that love and um, you know, with this support behind us you know let's just get out there and play the game. 
that final didn't start very well. No, it was, um, I had a really cunning plan. <laughs> Here we go. Yeah. You know, it was like, uh, you know, we started Michael Gager. So that was, again, that was that was my call. Um, and um, and that was like a you know, uh, my gut kicking in. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Michael will you know, come in and he'll throw the ball hard and these guys wouldn't have, haven't really seen that, that velocity. And uh, next thing you know, we're down three zip in the first inning. Um, and uh, so that didn't quite work out for us. And Jimmy, Jim was phenomenal for us. Um, but the uh, Canadians had seen him, and we thought we'd see, show them something different. Was, uh, I didn't get that decision right. Now, Michael was um, um, a very talented um, um, pitcher. Uh, he just probably wasn't built f- at that stage of his career for that moment. Uh, then um, we get back into the game with, um, again, Mark um, I'm hitting um, Dion in. So back in the game, and that means it was really important that we scored a run in that inning. So yeah. we're... From three 0 down with three one, and then then uh, and then Michael goes back out, and then I think he walks the first guy or whatever it is, and it was like, hey, we can't, no more base runner. So then Jimmy came in, and then Jimmy did um, did a, a great job. And then you think about in terms of the um, the little things that help you win a World Series. Um, again, I'll, I'll come back to a game against the US. It was the first inning, the US, where it was the um, top of the first. There was a runner on three. Might have been two out, and um, must have been runners on three and two. Uh, and Mark and Jimmy Wano crossed up. So Mark was expecting a drop ball, and Jimmy threw a low rise ball. Uh, and um, again, the, the, one of the, the, the coolest things I've, I've seen in sport was that Mark's ability to react. And that was, you know, he dropped his glove, and he just took it in the chest and kept it in front of him. So... Um, US don't score a run. We get out of the inning. It's it's uh, they haven't scored a run, and then we go on to beat them like ten zip. But again, a completely different game if the mm. US get out ahead of us yep. and um, momentum shifts and things like that. So you get little things like that. And then we had a phenomenal hitting lineup. It was like, and we wanted to um, in the, in that World Series. We knew that we didn't have the pitching depth um, of the the Canadians in particular. But we wanted to be relentless. We wanted to be. We wanted to give them the feeling that they were at Titahi Bay Beach, and the wave was just crashing on them. And then they'd get up and they'd gasp for air and they think, "Wow!" And then another one crashes on them, and then another one, and then another one. And we wanted the pitcher to look at the guy who's in the box and then go, "Okay, hey, who's on deck? Shit! Oh, who's on? Who's in the hole? Shit!" <laughs> And that's what we wanted them to feel like, and that's pretty much the way it played out. Our hitting was um, relentless, um, and um, to the extent in terms of we didn't have to get cute, we didn't have to do um, um, play too much of a short game. We just um, uh, exploited um, our power, and we ran. We had um, uh, we had great athletes um, who could hit the ball hard, and we took extra bases. We didn't have to bunt. Um, and it was pretty much in terms of we just hey, sit back, let the guys play, um, and um, an absolute joy. And, and you talked about in terms of the, the coolest things that happen as a coach at the international level is um, sitting back and watching celebrate the team, your team celebrate. Uh, so um, you know, my go-to is that when the team wins, you'll never see me out in the middle. The reason you don't see me out in the middle is because I miss it. If I'm out and amongst it, I'm not going to see it. I want to sit back in the dugout and I just want to watch it. I just want to watch that emotion pour out and knowing how hard it is that um, that those guys worked um, for that result and know that, um, yeah, I was part of it 
Um, but they did it. So I just wanted to watch it. So, and the difference between 2000 and 2004, I can't remember, one guy said, yeah, the difference was that in 2004, I think Don crossed his legs. But he was still on the dugout just watching it. Going, yes, it's pretty cool. Don, I, I look at the, you, you sent us some information the other day uh, and um, you talked about um, influential people and you mentioned all the players you coached from the five-year-olds through the Black Sox have all been smarter than me. Yep. You talk about on the world stage winning a World Cup and sitting back to see their enjoyment. Yep. So you even talked before we started this interview watching your kids play and you're the parent standing underneath the tree miles away from anything. You never want to be in the limelight. Why not? Um, probably because that's not who I am um, and that um, you know, maybe grew up in terms of just, you know, being humble was something that's really important to me. Um and um, having real dignity when you when you're successful, uh, so that's really important to me. The um, and so I I shun from the limelight. I guess that there's a little bit of um, I don't need to promote myself. If I'm any good, people will know who I am. So I don't have to say anything. Um, there's a little bit of that in it. Um, and then when you talk about in terms of the players who have always been smarter than me, absolutely believe it in terms of because they know themselves better than I would know them. Uh, and one of the biggest traps in coaching is that we try, we, we, we actually, we don't mean to, but we try to coach or create clones of ourselves because if we talk hitting, then typically you talk about your own experiences about this is how I did it. Um, if I think about pitching in New Zealand, we were the best pitchers in the world when we didn't coach it. Um, the moment we started coaching it, um, I think we started trying to create clones and guys who weren't, the, and again, when we're the best pitching in the world, they're all different. They all look different. But the ball went up, the ball went down um, with control. Uh, and that was my mindset with coaching, is that work with the player, understand what's important to them, and then coaching's only about two things. First thing is transfer responsibility to the player because they play the game. And the second thing is raising awareness that you know, something might need to change. And then how you do that depends on the athlete. But if we get that right, the deliverable is self-belief, confidence. And that's whether you're a five-year-old or whether you're uh, playing at the elite level. Ownership for your, for your actions, both as a coach and an athlete, how important is that? Massively important. And that's the thing is that if you, um, again, I'd come back to the first step to confidence is vulnerability. I need to be brutally honest with myself that there's parts of my game I need to get better at. Uh, and if, I, if I'm brutally honest with myself, then I will work my butt off to be better at it so that when I cross the white lines, I'll be supremely confident that I will execute it. The first guy that I really saw that in terms of um, taking it to that level was Richie McCaw. So Richie would be, he would readily share um, his vulnerabilities hey, I'm playing against George Gregan or, or, or hey, I'm, I suck it in terms of um, you know, the line, in the lifting in the line out or whatever it is. And then the inspiring thing to see during the week is see him in the extra moments or when they do their little extra bits, 
he's working on that skill set that he doesn't think he has nailed. And then, but then the cool thing is that when he crosses that white line, he absolutely nails it. And why? Because he admitted to himself that there's a part of his game we need to get better at. And then he worked his butt off to um, to get better at it. And then when it mattered, he executed. Very cool. Very cool. For me, I get to like say, you know, refer to, oh yeah, um, softball player I saw. You get Richie McCoy. Yeah, just name drop Richie McCoy. I got a pretty cool phone. Yeah, <laughs> I bet you do. <laughs> yeah, and I bet you don't even show people because that's the type of person you are. No, um, no I absolutely don't. No. <laughs> um, uh, one one of the things that kind of sticks out from what you're you're saying there that I'm j- just trying to get a, a a better understanding. Yeah, here's probably a good way to put it. If you were grabbing a softball player now, and you were wanting to give them some advice to become an elite softball player, what would the advice be? I'd probably start with, um, um, what do you want? Um, um, what do you really want out of this game? And then I'd ask them, why do you want it? Uh, and um, and I think about that a lot in terms of, you know, we have like personal, um, you know, what we want out of life and why we want it. And then, you know, you get a little older and you get a little bit, bit more perspective. And I'll share your, yourself. My, my personal um, what and why is that, um, um, what do I want? I want to be happy and healthy. And what do I, why do I want to be happy and healthy? So I can add value to the people I love and the people they love. So when I'm going off for my, you know, 5K run and I don't really want to do it, it's like, well, I'm doing it because I want to be happy and healthy. And if I'm not happy and healthy, I can't add value to those people I love. So that's there's that side of it. And then there's the and then you look at it in terms of from your you could look at it from a career, you could look at it from um, um, your sport in terms of again, what do I really want out of my sport? And then what do I really want it? And again, your first iteration is going to be pretty average. Um, but then when you get a little um, older, a little bit more perspective, it gets sharper. And, um, and that's where you don't want to waste any time once you've really figured it out. Um, so again, it's like I've had so many cool opportunities and, um, and where it crystallised for me was actually I spent some time with the Navy SEALs in San Diego um, and they started telling me stories about their what and why and incredibly inspiring stories. Now, they're, they're a serious team. And then I drove over the bridge from Coronado back into San Diego, so it's about a 10-minute drive. And I was like, you know what, I haven't, I've thought about it, but I haven't really thought about it. And that was when I drove over the bridge. And in that 10 minutes, it was like, that's where I came up with my personal what and why. And then for the Padres, what do I really want for the Padres? Is that I want to be part of a group that creates an environment that empowers our people to be extraordinary. And why do I want that? Because I want to bring joy to the people of San Diego. So then that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. Um, to you know, to work ridiculous hours, to do um, stupid things and stuff like that, um, to um, you know, to work with um, you know my kids or not work for my kids in terms of ensure that my kids um, understand what it is that I'm trying to do. But having said all that, the um, when you work in sport and in, in, in a sport like rugby and a sport like the Black Sox, a sport like um, the Padres, is that our families have to love us working for, for the All Blacks, working for the Padres. And that means different things to different people. So for every all my staff in San Diego, that's something that I've brought to San Diego. We've never they've never thought like that before, and that was we do what we do, and our family does what they do, 
and um, and we have absolutely changed um, the mindset of so many people in the states or or in the Padres setup, and the the goodwill that we've purchased from the families um, uh, has helped our guys actually come to work with a spring in their steps and do much more. And and for me, in terms of when I think about my kids, is that you talked about the Richies and the Sunny Bills and things like that. So. Sonny Bill came to, on an off day with the All Blacks, um, he came to watch my girls play netball. It's like, you can imagine what my girls felt like. Yeah. <laughs> um, and what did he do? And, 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 and every and he, mother and, that was at the netball yeah, course. Yeah, and, and he went straight to them, hugged them, um, did all that sort of things. And, and, of course, everyone on the netball courts wanted a piece of Sonny Bill, but he was only there for my girls. Nice. So, um, you, know, um, my, uh, you, know, you know, they've all... Um, hitting the batting cages at Petco Park. They've all taken fly balls at Petco Park. Um, they've all done things that, um, again, and those are the things that um, we I can provide for them that um, in a small way compensates for me being away for, for long periods of time because the thing about working in high performance, and this is where a lot of people don't quite get, and I'm hearing all the arguments about balance, is that high performance, we have our backs to our families for long periods of time. So that when we spin around and face our families, it needs to be guilt-free and it needs to be about um, you know value, um, and that's what we what I try and do in every team that I'm leading now, um, with uh, certainly in New Zealand rugby and certainly at the Padres in terms of and the guilt-free part of it is really hard to do because it's hardwired in us. I have just been on the road for six weeks and I haven't been out of the office. I want to come in and um, spend some time in the office. I need to spend some time in the office. So I need to be seen in the office. So it's like no bugger off. Um, you know, reintegrate with the family, um, spend some time with the family. That's more important. Great advice. Great, great advice for sure. Um, let, let's let's dive into that. This high performance sport. That's that's the role after the socks. They come knocking, uh, and then of course comes uh, the All Blacks as well, and the, and the Olympics. How did that all unfold? Well, I still think I'm a fraud. So I'm still trying to work all that out because, again, as far as my brothers and sisters are, because I'm the dumbest one in my family as well, so I'm just the dumbass from Porirua. And it's like, um, but uh, if I think about the um, uh, why I stopped coaching the Black Sox, it was a pretty easy decision. And that was that um, I love the Black Sox, um, but I didn't love them as much as my family. Um, and that um, I had a very, I was working in IT at the time, so I had a very demanding job, uh, and it was like, hey, um, do I continue to coach the Black Sox or do I lose my family? Um, so easy decision. And then it's the way things work out in life. It's like, so you give up your Black Sox dream, and then almost like the next minute you get an opportunity working in a high-performance sport where it's still about coaching. It's just not coaching athletes. You're coaching people. You're coaching coaches. So I got the best of both worlds. I continued to coach and I could get home and spend time with my family. And that's how that started with high-performance sport. The first job I had there was to work with high-performance coaches. And um, the first day on the job, I was given the literal um, blank sheet of paper and say, hey, we're in trouble with our high-performance coaching across New Zealand. Do something about it. So then I had to sit down and figure out, well, what are we trying to do? What does a high-performance coach look like? Because I don't know if I'd recognise one. It's like, yeah, I coached. Coached the Black Sox, we had some success, but would I say that I was a, a, a um, an elite coach? No. So I got a bunch of coaches together in terms of some of the best coaches in New Zealand, got them together, and we started to ask them questions in terms of what sorts of things did you do? 
what does a really good coach look like? And then that started to create a, um, a blueprint for us to say, well, if this is aspirationally what we're trying to develop, then what sorts of things do we need to put in place to give ourselves a chance at developing that? Um, so that's how I got into that, and that took me to the Athens Olympics where I was like a mentor for, um, for coaches and the Beijing Olympics. And, that, and again, I'm a kid from Paira, um, and, uh, so and I'm a boy at heart. So, you know, my party trick at the Olympic Games is I've run the 100 metres at both the Athens and the Beijing Olympics, and that is where you, you know, before the athletes rock up, you get to the start line, you go, ready, set, go, and off you go, charge down the, the 100 metres. And it's, it's pretty cool to say, yeah, I've, I've run the 100 metres in Beijing and, and Athens. I've, I've played shortstop at 25 major league stadiums. Um, I've drop-kicked goals at Twickenham, at, at Murrayfield, at Lansdowne Road, and all the rest of it. And it's like, and this is all because I'm working. None of my mates <laughs> think I have a job, and it's like, and they keep like every time I see them. So, what part of that is work? Yeah. So, and that's where I'm very, very privileged to combine passion with employment, and I don't take that for granted. Um, and I absolutely respect the people that are giving me opportunities, um, which um, drives me to ensure that um, I don't let them down. So often you see these days, uh, Don, um, people change themselves for what other people perceive they should be. Being yourself, is that important to you? Yeah, I mean, there's, yeah, I know I'm unique, just as you are, just as you are, Damien. It's like there's only one Don Tricker on this planet. So, you know, I've got to learn to love myself. Um, and um, so, yeah, I am comfortable in who I am. I don't try and be someone who I'm not. And I come back to my mates from Pro College. Yeah. Is that if um, the moment I, I think I'm better than what I, what I really am, is that, and I'm serious, they slap me around and say, wake up. Uh, so, and that's why I'm so grateful to them um, and so grateful to my family. It's like, um, you know, I remember, um, remember Mitchell saying to me one time when we were talking about the arguments, I was talking to him and he just said to me, he would have been about 14 at the time, maybe 13, he says, you, know, you might think you're a big shot at work, but you're just a wanker around here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably a wanker at work as well. <laughs> so, but again, just the way that, that, that your kids put things into perspective. And yeah. It's like, yeah, you're spot on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love how kids can do that. Bring you back to zero and a heartbeat. <laughs> but to be fair, uh, a hug and a smile from them can also make you a hundred and a heartbeat as well. So kind of lucky uh, in that sense. Um, I don't want to gloss over things too much because you, you did so much when it comes to high performance sport and, and the rugby and the Olympics, the Commonwealth Games. You were everywhere, uh, it seemed, at one stage. Um, did it feel like you were on a roller coaster the whole time? Uh, not so much. They all sort of, um, yeah, they, they had, yeah, it wouldn't be a roller coaster. It would just be like you're at, yeah, you could say you're at a, an amusement park, you're in a roller coaster one day, yeah, and you're on some other ride another day and things like that. Because again, they're all very, very different. Mm. So, um, the, you know, the All Blacks, um, massive pressure, uh, so again, it was like probably the worst time in my life was when I did the review in 2007 after the Rugby World Cup where myself Why? and Mike Horan um, got picked up to do that. Yeah. And that was because, you know, we were trying to, I was talking to people who were, you know, emotionally broken. Um, they were devastated by the um, the, the result in, uh, at, in at Cardiff Arms Park against the French. So you're trying to unpick all of that. Um, and trying to try and figure out what the key trends are so that there's some real learnings as we go forward. Um, but again, so you, you, you box on, you get through it, you, you, 
you put something together in terms of some, some ideas and some, some areas that, that the All Blacks could have um, sharpened up on. Um, and you know, I'm really, really proud of, of what the work we did there because that became the catalyst for um, uh, a lot of the success that the All Blacks had in 2011, 2015 and so on. Um, but the real catalyst was the coaches, um, and it took them a couple of years to figure out that they were part of the problem. And the inspiring thing there is that once you actually take ownership, coming back to the word ownership, then you're part of the problem, then that empowers you to be part of the solution. So then everything changed. So um, And uh, it'd be fair to say that I'm not the type of guy that, that Graham Henry was looking to for advice or, or critique. Um, so, uh, and, you know, I was very, um, I was tight with Steve Hansen. So Steve Hansen and I, nothing was off the table. We could, um, we could talk about anything. But with Graham, you had to be a little bit, uh, just a, um, a little bit more strategic and, and pick your battles or pick your moments. Yeah. And often I was, um, I was like the sacrificial lamb for Graham is that, something that needed to be said and because I, I wasn't part of the All Blacks I was slightly just outside of it I could share what I thought and um, and to his credit I mean he, he's, he would certainly bite me but he would always go away or retire to his cave and reflect on a few things and he'd come back and see me the next morning and say hey, you might be onto something but the first time I shared it with him mm. it wasn't very pleasant <laughs> what, did you, what did you title the report take your heads out of your ass yeah. it's not just the Ford Pass Oh, yeah, there was a lot. Of, I mean, that was the whole thing. It was, I mean, the New Zealand public had been brainwashed as well. And let's just say, it'd be fair to say that the All Blacks were, they didn't get the rub of the green um, from the refereeing that day. Uh, but that wasn't Worst the... Worst birthday ever. Yeah. <laughs> October 7. Well, I was overseas, so it was October 6. Okay, my son's yeah. October 7, and yeah. he did the same thing. <laughs> Thanks a lot, All yeah. Blacks. Um, but uh, the... The, the, the thing again, it was like, okay, so they didn't get the rub of the green, absolutely. Uh, but there was some things when they looked back at it, and again, it took them a little while to, to accept it, was that, yeah, they were the architects of um, their own demise. Um, and that's cool, and that's, that's the thing about every experience that we have is equally rich, whether it's a great experience or a poor experience. Um, the good teams understand why they win, which is why they repeat it. The average teams wait till they lose to try and figure out what went wrong and then how do we put it right. So if you think about the All Blacks' sustained success, um, they absolutely figured out what, what they were good at and they could repeat it. So, And that was how we did everything with the All Blacks in terms of we came back to... Um, so my role with them in 2011 and 2015 was to facilitate the strategy around winning a Rugby World Cup, trying to figure out what was important um, and uh, what was just noise, and then get rid of the noise and just focus on what was important. Um, so in 2011, we're pretty average at this at this stage. We had nine, what we say, critical areas we had to get right. Um, but by the time we got to 2015, we had four, um, and everything we did had to connect to those four. If they didn't, um, then it was clutter. We had to let it go. So my job, in addition to that, was to pop into the environment and say, oh, that's a pretty good idea, what, what you're doing there, Smithy, tell me about it. And then he'd tell me about it, and I'd say, tell me how it links back to these four. And then he'd look at me and go, oh. And then he'd let it go, because um, we'd come back to what was important. And it had that same thing with the Black Sox back in the day, but I was a little bit more complicated, but it was the same type of thing. It was like, let's simplify it. What do we need to be really good at? And let's be really good at it. 
And then over time, it just got a little bit clearer and a little bit clearer and a little bit clearer. And, and that's pretty much all I do. If I say the stuff I do with other sports is that I help them to figure out what's critical and um, and what's just clutter and how do we get rid of the clutter because we're really good at accumulating clutter, coaches in particular. Here's a question. 2004, you have the expectation of the country to win a World Cup on home soil. 2011, you have the same expectation this time with the All Blacks, so even more heightened. How do you sleep? We, um, oh, I don't play the game, so I sleep pretty well. Um, but um, what, I'll give you an example. 2011, one of the things that we had was that um, one of our nine was we, we had a united New Zealand behind us. And if you can think about that time, the All Blacks were slightly disconnecting themselves from the fan base. Um, and you very rarely would see an All Black in public, and if you did, he had a hoodie on and all that type of stuff. So then one of the things that we talked about was that, um, okay, so if we're going to have a united New Zealand behind us, then we need to change. Um, and that was, again, a, um, a like a, a watershed moment for me where I could see this in terms of the All Blacks then started engaging with the kids and then recognising the joy that they were bringing to the kids. And it was like, so it's obvious, might be obvious to us in terms of, you know, give a little bit of yourself and you probably touch 100 people uh, because of that, you know, that um, if I connect with this kid, then his kid tells um, their parents, who tells this group, this group, next thing you know, 100 people know. But we wanted to, to have an environment where the All Blacks, it was almost like two degrees of separation in New Zealand. Everyone in New Zealand knew someone who knew an All Black. Um, so that was what we tried to do. And we did it so well that um, uh, going through the airports became an event. Never used to be an event for the All Blacks. They used just to get off a plane and walk through and everyone would go, oh, there's the All Blacks, there's the All Blacks. No one would go to near them. Now they'd get off an aeroplane and they get um, mobbed. So and that screwed everything up and that would stress out someone like Graham Henry because the, the day was planned for, we had training here and all the rest of it. And it was like, so they had to do lots of things on the fly because... In the airport, you're supposed to spend 10 minutes at the airport, and they were spending like 30 minutes or an hour, hour and a half at the airport just to get out on the bus and off mm. they go. But that was what we needed. to. to and again, if um, the bus ride from the hotel to Eden Park on the um, the day of the final, it was like, you'd never forget it. Because you could feel that love. I was there, man. It was awesome. Just saying, it was, yeah. Bloody awesome. Got to share that with my father. Special moment for sure. Even though I was in the nosebleeds right at the end, but I got to go. It was my only oh, World Cup I've been to. And that's, that's that. But again, it's like it, it's people like yourself, Chopper, that makes it happen. So um, again, it's like come back to what's the, what's the point of high performance sport? It's joy. So did you and your dad have a cool time? Sure did. Did you, have a, did you share an experience that, that you, you would always talk about? And I still remember. Uh, <laughs> Uh, taking Mitchell to his first test match. It was I was I wasn't working for the All Blacks at that stage. I was sort of working for them because they gave me the tickets. Um, but at the end of it, I interviewed him. So here's like a seven year old, and he goes, "Oh, it's a homework project." And I interviewed him, and I said, "Okay, tell me about the the All Blacks." And so I wrote it all down about how noisy it was. It was against the Lions, 2005 Lions um, awesome test, too. Dan yeah, Carter yeah. test. Yeah. Uh, so he told Seems me all nice. about that. Yeah. Told me all about the coolest thing that happened was that when he turned around and he offered like a, a Lions supporter some chips and he had a chip and then after that the Lions supporter was nice up until then. He was horrible to the All Blacks. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we had uh, all that sort of stuff. So I just wrote it all down and it's like you put it in your back pocket and you bring it out when the kids get a little older. Hey, do you remember that time we went to watch the All Blacks for the first time? 
And that's again where it's the joy of sport. Absolutely. Getting a sport in New Zealand is there again, there is I'm incredibly proud of New Zealand. Um, but there is the stuff that happens in New Zealand around sport could not happen anywhere else in the world in terms of how we can bring our people together. Um, and um, some of the photos that I saw after the 2011 success, and same with the Black Sox success in terms of where the ethnic groups are all connected, we're all mates, we're all loving on each other, and we're sharing that that moment of success. Wouldn't happen in the States. Um, wouldn't happen anywhere else in the world, I would argue. And that's the cool thing about the, the you know the the was it the blending pot of New Zealand in terms of we're one people and that's how I grew up in Porirua, is that you know we're all the same, we're all from large families, no one locked the door, um, and uh, we yeah we got the surprise of our lives when when some of our mates went Maori in the Pacific Islands. What do you mean you Pacific Islands? Oh, you're Maori. <laughs> and I said like, yeah shit. So I thought I was Maori too. <laughs> Well, You're Maori, aren't you? Yeah, apparently. <laughs> All I can say is if you ever come home, please work with the Warriors. Please. <laughs> I think, again, it's like I think about the Blues and the Warriors, and this is a question I pondered years ago with the Blues and I put to them, is that I haven't quite figured out that you guys, I don't think you guys have figured out the uniqueness of being an Aucklander. Um, because I watched the Blues, and the Blues, this, I haven't done anything in rugby for a long time, but the Blues were doing the same as the Hurricanes, the same as the Crusaders, the same as the Highlanders and all this around how they prepared all week and all the rest of it. But in Auckland, it's massive. Traffic yeah. is massive. Mm. So it's like um, two trainings a day isn't feasible in Auckland. And I remember talking to the Blues years ago and said, I think you guys should be in the real estate business. And I said, what do you mean? It's like, well, your goal should be all your players live within 10 minutes of your training base. Um, and then you've got a chance to do all this sort of stuff. But if they're living like an hour and a half away, it's like, you're going to struggle. Mm. No. That was a question I put to them. Didn't already know the answer I just put to them. It was just an observation. Good point. <laughs> I, I love it. I love it. I love it indeed. Um, before we get to um, uh, the Padres um, and, and going away from uh, the All Blacks and that decision, yeah, here's the question I want, I've been wanting to ask you actually for the whole time. How the hell does this little country at the bottom of the world one of the smallest populations in the world, smack home runs against the rest of the world all the time. I'm not talking about softball, I'm talking about sport in general. Yep. I think, um, I think we're pretty uh, um, simple people in terms of, again, it's, I don't think we get ahead of ourselves. I don't think that um, we, um, we're, we're typically not driven by ego. Um, we're, we're driven by service and um, hey, I'm indebted to the game, want to put something back to the game. So so our our heart's in the right place. The other part is that you know, New Zealand's a, a country of explorers. Um, and if you think about you know, Sir Ed Hillary um, in terms of what he and Tenzing Norgay did, um, think about Peter Blake um, and, and the, you know, it goes on and on and on. And I think in terms of um, New, Ze- New Zealand, um, we have an explorer mindset. So if I think about sport in the United States, is that, and it's one of the things I'm trying to bring to the Padres, is that we, we have an explorer mindset because if we play the game um, the way that the Dodgers play the game, we'll get out-resourced. So for every dollar that we spend, they'll spend 10. So if we do what they do, 
we'll never win. So we have to do things differently. So it's almost like we're trying to discover a new way of preparing for a game, a new way of playing the game. And I think that's something that, that New Zealanders bring to the United States. Um, and um, I don't think we get um, trapped into, um, hey, this is what a coach is and this is what a coach isn't. It's like, and, um, and we figure out what's right for the players because um, a lot of the coaching I see in the States, um, I would say, isn't coaching. It's more training partners. In a baseball context, you get guys who hit balls, you get guys who throw balls. Um, in a basketball context, you get guys who say, hey, good shot, good shot, but I don't actually see a lot of coaching in terms of breaking down what was good about it, um, those sorts of things. So I think that that certainly um, um, sets us apart. And um, and the other part is that, you know, we've always been courageous. And it's to say, you know, what's the worst thing that can happen? I get fired. I'll just come back to New Zealand. I still love it. <laughs> yeah. um, and, um, and, that, and that gives you the... Well, at least and put it all. And that, and that gives you the courage to share what you think yeah. um, instead of sharing what you think you're supposed to think. Um, so that's, uh, yeah. And that's, and, and again, it's like in rugby, I had no pedigree when I worked for rugby. I've got plenty of people that think rugby. My job was to think differently. Baseball. I've got no pedigree in baseball. I understand what they're trying to do, but I can't talk about how to pitch a ball or how to hit a ball in baseball. I've got an idea, but I can't really talk about it. But um, I know strategically what we're trying to do, so I can ask questions. And I can and I can recognise what um, effective coaching is and, and what poor coaching is. And you know, the best coaches in the world um, are incredibly open and share their knowledge and experience. Um, the average ones um, um, withhold it. They don't want to share. And again because they're typically not secure in themselves because they're, they're, they're frightened of being found out. Like, is that all you know? Whereas I knew I didn't know a lot, so I was ready, I was ready to share anything. Nice, nice. Um, you're, what did you take from softball as you went on this journey of being a high-performance co- coach through the different codes? still comes down to um, clarity of what you want. So, um, and it's not so... You know, there's this whole thing about outcome versus process, and you get a whole lot of people talk about it's about the process, it's about the process, it's about the process. Now, that's crap. Um, Because the process will always deliver an outcome, but it might not be the outcome you're looking for. So I go the other way, and I go, the outcome needs to be so clear that the chair of New Zealand, of the board of New Zealand, knows what our hitting identity is. So in Christchurch, they need to know that we are not going to chase, and we are going to crush strikes. And then if, if he sees us chasing and swinging at pitches that are bouncing or pitches three feet over his head, they should be coming to me and saying what's going on. So, and then they're not going to get into the process of how we do that. Because then, so, so for every part of the game, and um, like in baseball, we've defined every part in terms of pitching, um, catching, middle infield, um, uh, corner infielders, outfielders. Uh, and then for every position, we've defined what the skill set is that we're looking for. We did it the same with the All Blacks as well. We did it with the Black Sox, but not to the same level of what, what we've done. And that's the whole thing is that I had an idea back with the Black Sox and it might have been this big. By the time I got to the All Blacks, it got to that big. By the time I'm with the Padres, it's pretty much down here. We've figured a few things. So it still starts with, always start with the um, the end in mind. So figure that out. And then the, the other principle is to steal something from Stephen Covey that I've used all the time, and that is seek first to understand before being understood. So that is that I'm not going to share with you what I know until I know what you know and why do you do why you do it and why is it important to you. 
Uh, and that's that. That's a trap for guys who come into new environments. It's like, hey, I'm the top dog now. I'm going to go and change everything, and I'm going to do it my way. And before you know it, you're just um, disengaged with everyone that's important to you or supporting the team because they've all had some skin in the game of what they were doing previously. And I was disrespectful to them because I didn't spend any time trying to understand what was important to them. And that's what's again, I've, I'm I'm sort of jumping all over the place. And that's what makes me really sad about some of the shit that's going on in, in high performance sport in New Zealand at the moment in terms of around culture, around not giving a shit about the athletes. It's like where where is that in and who we are as New Zealanders? Mm. And it's like, and it all comes to back to you cannot win or not be successful um, without good people. Uh, and um, you know, and again, in my my strategic days, I'd say in terms of a Give me um, great strategy with average people, we'll achieve nothing. Give me no strategy with great people, we'll do extraordinary things because good people will figure out what needs to be done and how they're going to do it. When you say good, you're not you're not referring to skill. You're talking about character, right? Absolutely, character. So again, it's like, and that's like with the the Padres. One of the first questions I asked the Padres was, like, "Tell me what a Padres guy looks like," and no one could tell me. So well, how how do we recruit? How do we recruit? What you know? What is we looking for? So now we've got it quite simple in terms of again, it's like, and this is across what we try and do when we when we when we scout and we recruit our people, and that is that we want people who are driven, um, people who are respectful, people who are open, and people who are competitive, and we've got some very clear definitions in terms of what that looks like. The driven people are the people who work when no one's watching, will get out of bed um, um, with a spring in their step. Um, you know the the respectful people. You know, respect themselves, respect their teammates, respect the community, respect the game, and so on and so on and so on. And that's one of the challenges I have. For, you know, a goal that I have for for my children is that they're going to add value to whichever community they choose to walk in. The only way they can do that is if they respect themselves. And then there's that that open in terms of that hunger for knowledge, that hunger to to get better. Um, um, that that that. Um, that mindset of that, I'm only partly right. So I've got an idea, but Chopper, you've got you've got an idea, and Damon, you've got an idea, and then together we've got a way better idea. Um, and then the competitive thing is that whether we're playing table tennis or cards or whatever it is, I want to win. Um, so because you know, winning in high performance sport is pretty cool. Losing in high performance sport, you know, isn't isn't great. Uh, so now we've got this identity in terms of what we're trying to look for, and that that's and again, it's like, but we're not going to get it right. Sometimes you're going to get seduced by talent. Um, but talent um, not backed up by character and you use the All Blacks no dickheads type policy it's like and we say to the Padres we can afford one and a half guys who who are a bit dodgy we can't have two of them so because that's where all your energy goes yeah and uh, and and again we've got some phenomenal athletes with the Padres some guys who like guys like Manny Machado have got a bit of a bad rep and and he's probably deserving of that and some of the things he's done in the past and that is, but he's just a normal dude who um, sometimes his frustrations get the better of him. But um, you couldn't find a more generous um, um, guy, a more guy who has who has genuine joy for his teammates when they achieve than Manny Machado. So absolutely love the guy. Um, but um, and again, he would look back and you go, "Yeah, I wish I had some of those moments back." But um, fortunately, touch a bit of this. There's been none of that stuff in the last probably two or three years with us. There's there's a real good question. So obviously you've got the job now with the Padres, uh, and have been there now a number of years. Four. Um, this is a good question. If you talk about uh, Manny Machado, and I don't want to pick on anyone, but an athlete like that, how do you 
get him to be extraordinary, but with as uh, as as you put it, Coach Haggis has said to act with class. How do you do that? Part of it is that um, so we need to have our players, and I, I, I used the analogy of driving a car. Right? Um, too many people um, live their lives in the rear vision mirror. Um, what it is that they've done. We need Manny to recognise the rear vision mirror um, is why he's being paid. $300 million, that's because of what he's done and, and things like that. We need to be looking through the windscreen in terms of where it is that he's going, and that's the focus for him. Um, and so how that's we just keep on working with him in terms of who gives a shit what you did last year or the year before. It's like what you're doing now and what you're doing. And again, we've got players who um, haven't quite figured out that they're getting a little older, um, they can't quite do what they did a few years ago, yet they're still trying to do the same stuff. So again, and I come back to coaching again, we need to raise awareness that something needs to change. The only way that we can raise awareness is that we can transfer responsibility and the player takes ownership of their poor performance and goes, you know what, something needs to change. Um, and until we crack that nut, nothing's going to change. So you'll come to my office in um, San Diego, you'll see nothing, no memorabilia from the Black Sox, nothing from the um, from the All Blacks and stuff like that. And the reason for that is that that was shit that I've done before. Yeah, it's in cupboards and under the stairs and things like that, and I'm incredibly proud of it. Yeah. Um, but that's that's not what I'm about now. I'm about trying to do something for the Padres. What is that something? I mean, you talked about the the, the why, and, and your real why with the Padres is about giving um, – giving the fans some love or giving them some joy. That wasn't the decision to go to the Padres in the first instance. Why did you go to the Padres? Um, it was a random thing. Um, Padres um, came to the general manager, AJ Preller, and one other guy came to New Zealand in 2017, I think. And um, and they were doing something in Australia and they came and had a chat with Baseball New Zealand. They want to come and have talk to someone about the All Blacks and it happened to be me. Um, I was on holiday because it was over the Christmas period and I came in and I thought, I'll just give these guys 30 minutes. Um, we talked for about five hours. Um, then at the end of the five hours, I get invited to spring training. I thought they were talking about 2018. They were talking about in two weeks or three weeks' time. And um, so then it was like, okay, I'll go up. I had no idea what I was going up there for. I'd go up and week in the sun watching baseball, eating hot dogs. I can think of worse things to do. <laughs> yeah. So went up there and um, and then uh, they invited me back up there two more times during the year. And so like uh, my Mitchell and Georgia and I um, had planned a baseball holiday coincidentally, independent of all of this. Um, and then we rocked up there and I spent um, three or four days with the uh, Padres and then they set the holiday up. They paid for it all. And we thought, this is a bit weird. Um, but anyway, we had a hell of an experience to go back to New Zealand and come back up again, and then that's when they dropped it on me in terms of uh, what would it take for you to come and work up here full time. Uh, and I used the, um, um, yeah, I can say in terms of good, I can say absolutely good people trying to do something that's never been done before. But I had a pretty good gig with the All Blacks in New Zealand rugby. Good people trying to win a third um, Rugby World Cup on the trot. Uh, but I wasn't entirely happy. Um, and uh, the Padres got me at that moment. Otherwise, I would have said no to them. About four, three, four years earlier, I had a basketball franchise from the States connect me, um, ask me randomly if I was interested to, to come and speak with them. And I said no. Um, and that was because 
uh, would have been about 2013 and I was totally hooked into the All yeah. Blacks and what we're trying, I was totally happy. So nothing got compelling. And then with the um, the Padres, all of a sudden it got compelling because I enabled it, I allowed it to get compelling and then it was like, okay, let's go. And then um, I got Kerry to, win it. so what would it take to get you up there? Um, Kerry and I talked, we said this is what it would take and I said, you need to press send. Because if they come back and say, yes, 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 we go. <laughs> And um, she went, she pressed send. So it, uh, it had to be our decision. It couldn't be mine. Yeah. Uh, and that's pretty much the way it worked. And it's like, and look, there was no way that um, growing up, I would think that I would ever get to the Olympic Games, Commonwealth Games, working in rugby. Um, you know, I still talk to the first 15 coach at Pyro College, you know, Tell him every once in a while the reason you never won the Baird Trophy, which is the big game between Pyro College and Mana College, is because yeah. he never picked me. <laughs> and he says, But you know shit about rugby. Yeah. And I said, Well, look, look what's happened now. <laughs> so, still no shit about rugby. Um, but, uh, and where was I going with this? And it's like, and it was just that um, uh, to be a bit of a trailblazer for New Zealand as well. Um, and it's to say, Well, hey, I've, I've had some really good experiences in New Zealand. Um, but now it's like, let's go over there and see what the, um, the, the big, uh, working in a leadership role in a big professional sport and see what that's like. But my mindset was the same as when I left IT to go back to, to work for Sport New Zealand. And it was like, if it all turns to shit, I'll just go back to IT. Yeah. When I left Sport New Zealand and went to rugby, if it all turns to shit, I'll just go back to Sport NZ. Um, when I left, um, again, um, um, rugby and go to, um, uh, uh, the Padres, if it all turns to crap, I'll just come back and I'll just do something in New Zealand. So it's not that not that big a deal. And the other clubs, like, I've got this Kiwi guy in there in the office. We don't know what he's doing, but he's doing something. Is that is that talk happening over there? No, they wouldn't have a clue who I am. And that was, again, part of what I tried. You, you would really see me, um, if you watched all black test matches, you would very rarely see me on yep. television. Yeah, And that would be a bad day for me so when i'm in the coach's box the first thing i do is i figure out where all the cameras are and then i work out where i'm sitting uh and uh so i would be in the coach's box for most of the test matches but you wouldn't know i was there uh and in, and in baseball it's the same thing it's like there's plenty of people who are going to share their story and, and want to let people know what they're about and that's one of the cool things about, well, one of the things about sport in the state is everyone wants to tell everyone how good they are one of the things that we're trying to do at the Padres is that um, we want others to wonder why. So we want to be a little, a little bit of um, mystique about us and say, what the hell's going on at the Padres? We're not there yet, but that's what we're trying to do. We're not trying to tell them what we're up to. A la the 2000 in East London, walk across past Japan, warm up for five minutes, get out of there, walk straight past them again. Yeah, and a bit like the All Blacks. The All Blacks, the... the greatest asset the All Blacks had was Mystique and then of course the book Legacy came out and it sort of unraveled everything and told what the All Blacks are up to and people think oh is that what the All Blacks are up to it's not that complicated but they just spent a long time the All Blacks spent a long time figuring out what was important to them and they got really good at what was important to them um, and um, and there was massive amounts of Mystique the more that the All Blacks opened themselves up um, the less Mystique there is and again for us at the Padres is that look we know that we're playing in a um, in a sport that's not fair but high performance is not fair um, you know someone wins someone loses and some teams have more resource than you and that's again that's the coolest thing about high performance sport is we're not fighting a war 
So that is in, the, in a rugby context or a Black Sox context, it's our best nine players against the Americans' best nine. Just because we've got, say, 30,000 and they've got 300,000, it doesn't make a difference. And it's the same with the Padres, is that we just need to figure out how we can get create that environment to enable our guys to be extraordinary, um, to do things a little bit differently, um, to be a little bit flamboyant, because that's part of our, our, um, our identity. We've got some really exciting players who express themselves, and we want them to express themselves. We want them to challenge these unwritten rules, which are all bullshit, because they're unwritten because they're so stupid no one's bothered to write them down. And then they get passed on from generation to generation, and it's like, well, like the whole thing about... Um, uh, there was kerfuffle last year with Tatis. He hit a, um, a grand slam um, when uh, we were up by about five, and he hits a home run, um, a grand slam on a three and O pitch. Now um, the unwritten rule is that when you're beating a team, you don't swing at those pitches, you know, and all the rest of yeah. it. And it's like the, the the backstory is that we'd been playing average. Our bullpen was just um, uh, no no lead was good enough for us at that stage. And it, was, it wasn't until he hit his grand slam that we went from five up to nine up. We thought, oh, we've actually won this game. So he got heavily criticised for that. Um, but the cool thing there is that the players around the league said, nothing wrong with what he did. The, guy, the other guy just needs to pitch better. So that was the narrative. But the older guys was like, oh, that's not how you play the game. And the, But the, the reason that the unwritten rule was there was that back in the day when these guys, when players would get sacked, um, uh, they had no protection, then that guy back in the day in the 30s might have been out of a job the next day. So then they had this, hey, if, if you're getting embarrassed, don't embarrass the team, just you know, keep them in the game type thing. So that's where the unwritten rule came from. Right, right. That makes sense. Makes, makes real good sense. Goes back to asking that why. What, what, what um, one, and I guess I think it's more paramount in baseball than anything just with the number of games. When you've got an athlete who's in a slump, especially a long slump. How do you help them to get out of that? Well, we're, we're challenging. See, my, my job is to challenge um, uh, historical thinking. So in the States, and I heard it like, um, I heard it with Jerome. Um, he rolled out some baseball cliches, you know, and softball. Softball is a game of failure. Or you, you get successful four times out of ten, you're a Hall of Famer and all the rest of it. And that gets rolled out all the time up there. Baseball's a game of failure. Baseball's a game of failure. And I go, no, it isn't. Baseball's a game of opportunity. What other sport do you get a chance to go back and put it right about 15 minutes after you failed? Most sports you have to wait a whole week to do that. And then they say, oh, baseball's a grind, you know, 162. And it's like, no, 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 baseball's not a grind. Baseball's a privilege. There's no other sport like it. It's a privilege to be playing this game to play 162. And then we change the mindset in terms of, okay, it's actually not about 162. We need you to be um, at uh, peak performance for 145 of those 162. Might not sound a lot, but an extra two days off a month is massive. So what do we want? Do we want Manny Machado to play 162 games and to get play 162 games, he'll play it at about 70% capacity because he can't go 100% across 162 or do we want Machado to play 145 games at 100% capacity and then the other bloke comes in for what um, 17 or 15, 17 odd games and he'll give it 100% that his 100% is probably not as good as Machado's 70% but over the course of the year 100% of Machado over 145 is a shitload better of 
um, 70% over 162. So we're trying to change that mindset. So now our players aren't, um, aren't figuring, uh, starting to figure that out. And then coming back to your thing about slumps, in baseball, the mindset is that you hit your way out of a slump. Now I go back to my IT days, and that is that when you're looking at a computer and it's spinning around, what do you do? Do you sit there and just watch it? Or do you, you know, you know what is it? Oh, whatever it is. Alt-Control-Delete. And reboot Stop your computer. It, yeah. It's like, well, that's what you do. So then, with uh, so what we're trying to do, if guys are slumping, we get them out. Stop thinking about it. Have a few days off, and then come back in, reboot, start again. It's a bit like the tin cup theory, you know, the old golf story. Yeah. Take change out of one pocket, go to the next. It's like do something different. But if you just keep on rolling them out, and it's like because there's no, is the slump going to be two days, um, two weeks, or two months? It's like. Just um, stop it. So, but we still need coaches or managers who have the courage to do that because people come to the game, they pay to see Machado and Tatis play. And when they're not playing, they go away disappointed. So they, we've got to um, manage that aspect yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah, fair enough. Not that you're probably allowed to mention what players, but... Um, uh, if you if if you had a wish list of players, a wish list of players, yeah, to do what? To win a world championship and any code, any, any athlete. Code? Yeah, see, I took this away from just baseball. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah. If you if you get a list of players, Sorry. you could grab to put on your team, whatever whatever it may be, maybe uh, playing volleyball or. Um, Playing softball, whatever, whatever it may be. Um, well, I, I talk about the attributes: mm. um, driven, respectful, open, and competitive. Uh, so they they they've got to be a, have a skill set, and they've got to be made of the right stuff. So, and I, I remember my time with the the Black Sox. That was incredibly um, proud in terms of when our guys were made of the right stuff, and some of the things that we did there to test them. We had a um, and I'll, I'll come to your answer in a second. We had an RSA test of character. So I don't know if you've heard people talk about this. RSA. RS, RSA. You know the RSA, Return Services yeah. Association. They're all throughout New Zealand. Yes. Then our test of character was that could we um, build a team that could go into any RSA in New Zealand, strike up a conversation with anyone in that RSA um, where it's not about themselves and hold that conversation? So that was the type of player that we wanted to build in 2000 and 2004, and we tested it. So we would go to RSAs. No way. Um, and go, go on there and have a chat. Uh, and so if I come back to the types of people that we're trying to build, it's like uh, we clearly need talented people. Without talent, you've got no show. And then you need people who, um, who believe that they, they, they can be successful um, and um, uh, genuinely um, are delighted um, when their teammates are successful. So those selfless acts, the Bevan Martin type people. So again, if you think about guys that I've seen over the years in terms of you build a team around, it'll be guys like Bevan Martin. Um, uh, it'll be guys like Glenn Davis. Um, guys that you know in terms of going to give you everything that you've got. Um, and then yeah, you think about the All Blacks in terms of guys like um, you know Richie, uh, Sonny Bill. Um, um, incredible blokes, misunderstood, um, but an incredible human being. Um, 
So again, guys like Machado, guys like I mean Tatis is the the young superstar in baseball right now, face of baseball. He's twenty two years of age. Um, at twenty one, he gets um, you know a contract for three hundred and forty million dollars. Now, I don't know about you two, but at twenty one, I wouldn't have been ready for that. I would lose my shit. Uh, so so now it's a case of okay, so how do we work with with Fernando so that Fernando is that we know he's got talent. But it's like, how do we continue to work with Fernando so that he's an outstanding leader um, and um, he's an outstanding human being? Now we're fortunate that his um, his mum and dad are awesome, so he's he's got all the raw ingredients to be a, be an outstanding human being and a, and a phenomenal baseball player, which is why ownership of um, say we wanted to be a Padre for the rest of his life. How how does uh, how does a club? And how does an organisation look like that? Because I, I know you've got your role and you've got X amount of people on the on the roster, but you must have somebody helping out that kid, or is that some his his responsibility to to have his outside people? No, you've got yeah, you've you've got. If you come back to that, it's the same with the All Blacks. Um, uh, not so much with the Black Sox because there are other people and lot lot more people involved. Yeah. Um, there are agents, there are things like that. So. With um with with like in Fernando's case is that um yeah it's first and foremost it's his responsibility because it's his life. Um, then um, we absolutely provide some um, some guidance, some perspective for him, um, just like his agent, just like the club. But the challenge that we've got when you're the superstar, the face of the base, not the, just the face of Padres, the face of baseball, is that everyone wants a piece of you, mm. um, and we need to manage who's taking a, a piece of him because that can be overpowering. Um, and if Fernando starts walking to work and it, all of a sudden it becomes a chore, um, then we're not going to get the best version of Fernando on the baseball field um, and the fans are certainly not going to get the best version of him. So we need to create um, that environment for, for Fernando in terms of, again, it's like when, when the people around him are incredibly respectful of him um, so that, um, yeah. Uh, we can enable him to play and do what he's really good at, which is bring joy. Damien's going to bring up some questions um, from our viewers for you in a, in a couple of seconds. Um, you talked about Fernando and you talked about Machado. Who's, uh, if we're staying with baseball here, who's a baseball player that when he comes to the ballpark or go, goes in that bat, say, you're like, i got to watch this at bat. Who's that player for you? I'll tell you in terms of who I've got to watch defensively is Manny Machado. So, uh, and I get the privilege of watching him every night. So I know he, he didn't win his, didn't win the gold glove this year. Um, and I know that Aaron Arenado is a fantastic player. I see him, well, I saw him, what, seven or seven times this year. We played the, the Cardinals seven times. Uh, but um, again, what, what Machado does on the baseball field defensively He's a magician. He's almost like when he throws the ball, it's like he's, he's um, it's like a homing pigeon. No matter where he is, he throws it and he and it just always in the same spot. Uh, so he's a privilege to watch. So in the the Padres, um, uh, if I look at in terms of guys that I like to look at, obviously Tatis, um, massive excitement. But there are there are areas for him to get better. Guys like Jake Cronenworth, guys like Trent Grisham. Um, again, and these these are just normal dudes. They're they're no different to Dion Nukunuku, um, Thomas Markia, Jared Martin, Marty Grant. They're just cool guys, generous, 
Um, so, you know, when I say that in terms of Trent Grisham gives me a pair of cleats to say, hey, give these to Mitch. You know, Josh Cronenworth gives me a pair of cleats that he wore in the All-Star game I just gave to my godson. That um, kid is going to uh, be the talk so, of the town. So, and and, the, and then you look at the opposition and it's like, um, and then you've got Juan Soto. Yeah, he is a talent, man, hitting-wise. And the cool thing about it was that, or the sad thing about it, is that he could easily have been a padre. Um, so the Padres had a, had probably a shot at him about six years ago, and every, there was a there was another guy in the international draft that everyone was after, and and the Padres pretty much put all their chips into this other guy, um, who ended up going to the Yankees. Uh, but um, had they not put their chips into that guy, they probably would we probably would have had Sato. So you imagine in terms of again, it's like well we could have done this, we could have done that, we could have had Trey Turner as well. He was a Padre that we traded years ago. Um, so Tata, I mean Mookie Betts. Uh, Mookie Betts is just a yeah, he's a magician out there. He's like when he plays in right field, uh, God, he's there are games out there that, that he makes some plays, and it's like if Mookie Betts wasn't out there, we'd probably score three runs. Um, and it's like this guy's and and he impacts the game on you know defense, um, uh, base running and, and hitting again. It's like the complete player, but like Larry, again, it's like impacts the game. Um, whereas you get some guys who, who impact more defensively than offensively, but Betts is, is that sort of guy. Um, and that's the, the thing. It's like, that's my job. Um, 162 games. I did 160 this year. I missed two. Oh, had, had a birthday, and, and the team, we were in Oakland for two games, and I thought, I've been to Oakland before. I'll take Kerry up to um, we'll go away for a, um, a weekend. Good man. So, yeah. Find the balance. But, uh, yeah. But it is uh, it's a, it's certainly a different life, and, um, yeah. And yeah, well, I can't begin to say in terms of how surprising it is that I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, and you know, I went to Porirua Park and watched Tawa play um, Porirua on the weekend. There was Les Bishop and Fred Bishop, two guys that I played with uh, many, many years ago, and and uh, they're still Les, they're still Fred, and I'm still Dom. So, and that's the cool thing about it. That is indeed the cool thing about it. So good. We got other questions. Okay, well, I'll jump at this one because I know him as well and you just mentioned your godson. So, uh, Murray Britt wants to know your funniest Grant McCarroll story. Oh, honestly, there's like, there are lots of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, then she went, God damn it, open the chest. And that's the cool thing about Grant is that, and, and this is again when I put my, um, the, when we put the management team around him, it was Eddie and I, uh, and I knew what I needed um, to perform. Mm. And, you know, as you can tell, I can be a little bit intense. I can think, I maybe overthink a few things. Um, I needed someone who's going to make me laugh. Yep. Um, Grant could do that. And Neil Stewart, the, um, a guy that we had in our, our coaching setup, could make me laugh. They'd just tell me some stories. You'd shake your head and you think, why the hell would you do it? But you'd laugh. But I tell one story about Grant. Uh, we just arrived in uh, Vancouver, uh, and um, we're uh, we the guys go to a bar to you know loosen up a little bit, and there was a karaoke competition, hundreds and hundreds of people on this competition, and Grant fancies himself like I can win this. <laughs> I think you could too, Grant. What's your go to? Calendar Gills. Well, I think you could you could definitely rock that. So off he goes, and he's um, he's about to uh, to sing it. And then, then, you know, it was about, he has to line up and there's about half an hour before he gets there. So before he gets there, um, Dion Nukunu goes around the sides. Oh, Grant McGill, what's he got? Oh, you know, it's not the song he's after. So changes the song. (laughs) 
Uh, Grant goes up there, about to belt it out, and he goes, what's this song? I don't even know what it is. I don't know what the tune is. <laughs> <laughs> but off he goes. He tries to, to, to carry it on. So, But I see Grant... Um, Great, great friends. So we had some shared some incredible ex- um, some uh, experiences together. Uh, but uh, he has he's a unique storyteller, and um, he has a great skill set of um, yeah, getting me to laugh when I need to laugh. Need those friends. Yeah, we all do for sure. Excellent. Okay, uh, from one TP person to another. Well, ex TP Grant. <laughs> um, this question is around the pathways for aspiring uh, New Zealand baseball players and softball players. Do you see it uh, that there's a potential for New Zealanders to make it in the States? Give give the people the honest things, what you see over there. Yeah, the, uh, I think the, um, the there's a couple of things that, that New Zealand kids need to get their heads around. And the first thing is that um, they're they're not competing against New Zealand kids. They're competing against um, the rest of the world, so Latin American kids, um, American kids, and so on. So, um, and the other thing that they needed to compare, and I use my godson as a pretty good example. Um, so I use George McCarroll. So George is, is right into his baseball, right into his softball, loves them both. Um, and George is 15 now. And let's say um, right now George has spent, um, so I'd say that for every hour that George has spent on his game, there'll be a kid in the Dominican Republic that's probably spent 20. So there's, it's, I'm not to say it can't be done, it's going to be, it will be challenging. And the other part is that um, the greatest pathways is for our kids to get into um, the junior colleges, the college set up in the States to get seen and that's probably the best pathway for them to get signed professionally yeah. uh, the um, the other part um, when I think about uh, New Zealand trans- transitioning into baseball particularly professional baseball is that um, it's not about a team it's still about development um, and it's about how quickly you develop how, you're, how, how quickly you accelerate your development and that's one of the biggest things that that a New Zealand kids need to get their heads around in terms of um, you're comp- you're competing with a whole bunch of other kids who are really really good for only a few spots. Um, and New Zealanders New Zealanders are not more about in terms of hey how can I help the team win those sorts of things. Whereas you probably need to have like a, a bit of a selfish mindset to say all right um, what do I need to do to get better today? Um, and uh, and I need to focus on myself and my own performance. And that's something that's a bit foreign to New Zealand kids. So a lot of mahi. Um, right. Okay, this is uh, from Charlie Tangianel. Um, Don, you are a true VIP in our household. Uh, thank you for being awesome. Our daughter still plays the game and thanks to you. Five years ago, she was hanging her boots up for good and thanks to you she still plays and enjoys and understands the meaning of resilience she has met you twice but she is shy to share her story with you she will one day uh, she will one day one more fact she still talks about sitting in um, Manny Machado's locker Uh, thanks thank you for being good at touching people's lives without even knowing them you really are an angel uh from Charlie, oh, 
Rick's Rick's Ellie. <laughs> Rick's Ellie. Well, that, that, that's that's again a come back to joy, and it's like, and that, that obviously I'm a bit, um, uh, yeah, I got a bit warm and fuzzy there in terms of listening to that. But that's that's the cool thing about about what what I can do, um, and that um, bring joy to others. And I've had many many New Zealanders pop through San Diego. Uh, I um, I've, will do anything I can um, to ensure, particularly if they're through New Zealand, for, through sport in New Zealand, in terms of give them a baseball experience and let them understand what it is that we try and do, why we try and do it, um, what's working for us, what isn't working for us, but also get them into the batting cages, um, get them into onto the field. It's a bit tougher now through COVID, um, but that's, um, you know, I, like I said, I come back to them, I'm, I'm indebted to New Zealand sport. So therefore, anyone, any New Zealander that, that finds their way up there, I'll do whatever I can to, to help them out. Awesome. That at, the, like, like at the moment, I've got a New Zealand student um, staying in our apartment <laughs> who's stuck, who's stuck in, with, um, in the States because they can't get back to New Zealand. Oh, wow. So it was like, we'll come and stay at my place. It's, there's no one there and you've got a car, you can drive around in the car. So. Selfless, another selfless act. You're the man, Dom. I'll tell you what, and, and I, I tell you what, if looks could kill, when I told you I was a Dodgers fan before we started know, this, right. uh, but then at least when I told you the reason I'm a Dodgers fan, you were kind of okay, then Tom Marquis Sr. is a nice guy uh, in his club in Hawks Bay. But um, an opportunity to go to a baseball, I'm a big baseball fan, uh, have been for a, a large part of my life, um, but an opportunity to go and see a setup, how it works, uh, be in that environment. I mean, just the... Taking in a game for people that enjoy ba- uh, baseball is just that whole atmosphere of it, you know. Um, and I've been lucky enough to go to two games. <laughs> it sounds weird compared to you, 160 last year. But two games uh, in my life, um, and I cherished every single one of them, and uh, they were all special moments. Yeah, they are. That's, that's, and that's where you know, I keep on pinching myself, and every once in a while I walk past Petco Park with, you know, Kerry and I go for a walk in the mornings, and... We're only five minutes stroll from the park, and we look at it. and We go, "How did this happen?" Yeah. Um, and uh, and it is. It's like I don't take anything for granted, and and I know that in terms of um, I, I need to be you know better today than what I was yesterday, and otherwise I I, I stop adding value. Um, so it's again continue to add value, and you'll continue to get opportunities. Uh, so, but um, certainly don't take it for granted, and um, I still come back to you know like my mates would say to me, "It is a bludger from Poirou." get to work with the All Blacks, go to Olympic Games and then rock up in baseball and it's like a lucky one. <laughs> <laughs> Just shut up and give me an All Black jersey already, would you? <laughs> oh, no, they've, they've, they've done all that stuff. Don't worry about it. My mates back in the day, they used to do, when I used to play in the States when I was a kid, yeah. I'd bring back all the flash T-shirts, you know, the the, um, the playing shirts. And then one day I was walking downtown and I saw this guy walking down with an Oakland Athletic shirt. I thought, shit, I got one of those? Because you wouldn't see them back in Wellington back in the early 80s. And then I would get a bit close. I asked my mate, Peter. Pete, where'd you get that from? Oh, I just went around and saw your mum. <laughs> Said that you know, I was allowed to get something from you. So I just went in and grabbed it. <laughs> oh, okay. So, mum. Uh, you've yeah. been giving ever yeah. since. Oh, that's, that's fantastic. Actually, question. You said when you went up there with your son and your daughter, right at the very beginning with the Padres, you were planning a baseball holiday. Yep. Is that because you were a baseball fan? And who was your team? No, I was a baseball fan. So I was thinking when he said it as um, well. I was a baseball fan. So that, um, and my, are you allowed to say who your team is? Yeah, was? no, no. <laughs> I, I used to support the Cubs. Oh, yeah. um, and that was because I played softball in Cedar Rapids um, in Iowa. And the Cubs were about three hours away from us. Uh, and they were a, um, they were horrible. They were like a 
train wreck and you were just drawn to them. So that was the only <laughs> team that we had on TV. And they had a famous announcer called Harry Carey. Right. Um, and he was really entertaining. And you, and you watched the Cubs and it was like, if something bad was going to happen, it was going to happen to the Cubs. Uh and um, so that and that that's where um, where that came from, and and then it was so that trip we did um, we had it planned out. We started in in um, in LA. We watched Dodgers and Red Sox. Uh, we went um, uh, and then we went to San Diego, and it was San Diego versus the Giants. Uh, we went to Milwaukee because um, I know someone from Milwaukee, and we watched Milwaukee play. I can't remember who, and then went to Chicago and saw the Cubs play the Yankees. Um, uh, so it was like, well, this is pretty cool. And then sent the kids back home, and then I went on because I was going on to do something with rugby in Europe. So they went on to um, up that way, uh, and um, yeah. And then the Cubs have won their World Series. So I'm no longer a supporter of the Cubs. <laughs> uh, and uh, to your point about the Dodgers, the Dodgers, uh, you know, again, I've had the privilege to. I, we, we haven't played against the uh, American League Central yet. Uh, but the Dodgers are by far and away the first worst fans in baseball from my perspective. Um, and I'd liken them to... That an doesn't hurt at all. I'd liken them to an English rugby supporter. And that is that oh, um, no. they're not very gracious when they win and they're horrible when they lose. Oh, so much um, worse. So if you, if, if you want to punch up, go to Dodger Stadium after, a game, after, after the Dodgers lose and there'll be a fight somewhere. I um, that very first game I went to, um, uh, softball enthusiast in, in LA took took my father and I to it, and um, we were sitting. He got us really nice seats actually uh, behind the dugout, um, and I said to him, as "We were watching the game." He says, "Oh, what's it like out at Centerfield?" He says, "You don't go out there towards the end of the game. Do not go out there mm. towards the end of the game." So even he was kind of warning me uh, at at the time. But uh, well, I went out there this year. Um, we were. Might have been the last time we played the Dodgers in the regular season, and uh, we were up uh, by four runs going into the eighth inning or whatever it is, and they scored uh, four home runs in an inning, and I happened to go, I need to go for a walk. <laughs> so <laughs> I walked around out there. Uh, it was one of those games, again, one of those games was like, oh, this one's in the bank. And yeah. then it's like, oh, no, it isn't. Uh, uh, outstanding. I'm just jealous you get to go to those games, even though you're uh, – you're not a fan of the Dodgers, but um, yep. uh, you've got a pretty pretty cool cool team cool uh, right work. there in the Padres. I've got to say, I I mean, um, I don't have the rivalry uh, with the Padres at all. I don't have that feeling, or I don't have any of those built up rivalries that they have in the states about teams like yeah. Dodgers and San Francisco have a big one. I don't yep. I don't yep. have any of that uh, at all. But um, I just enjoy the the, the 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 game itself and getting to watch it and. Um, might come as a surprise to some people, you know how how much I love softball. But I've always been a fan of, yeah. of baseball. When I figured out yeah. there was a team called the Dodgers, no, we know how much you love baseball. Because that was we the thing about do. like one of our issues this year. Like we fell off the cliff the last six weeks of the year, and the the Giants played out of their skin, and it was a pretty easy narrative in terms of at the at the front end of the year, um, the we made some aggressive moves, and then then the the, the the press was just like it was the Dodgers, Padres, Dodgers, Padres, Dodgers, yes. Padres. Yes. And then the Giants are shit and everyone else is shit. And it's like, so these guys are sitting out there and it's like, so again, underdog and, and uh, we weren't quite ready to take on that mantle when they fired the, the Giants up and they had a hell of a year. Didn't they? And, that, and that's the thing. It's like it's the worst thing that could have happened to us is that, like, I think we were the second favourite to win the World Series yeah. um, and started going into spring training last year. And it was just like, stop talking shit like that. 
And that's the thing about stop. And that, that's one of the things that we work really hard and that is that, you know, we want, there's a saying that they say in terms of, you know, talk soft, play loud. Yeah. Um, and that's what we want to be. We don't want to talk a good game. We just want to go and play it. And I think one or two of us um, certainly got caught up in the, the hype and we lost sight of actually, nah, that's not what it's about. It's just going out there and winning tonight. Yeah. Nice. At least you don't have Trevor Bauer on your team just saying, God. Yeah, yeah, but that's that's right. That's just a forty million dollar asset that the Dodgers have got that that uh, they're, they're probably going to have to continue to pay. Yeah, yeah I know. But Richard, yeah. you know, you talked about hiring good people, oh, again, and again, that was disgusting in terms of again. I don't know if anyone's read the Trevor Bauer stuff, but as a parent, when you watch that, and a parent of girls, um, it was horrible. And oh, it's, yeah. still, it's still going through the courts. So I don't know what what, it, what it's going to come, uh, what's going to happen of it, but it was just horrible. That's exactly the, what, what I was referring to. It's it's his character. Um, mm-hmm. That is a question mark. And you talked about that and building a team, having good character. Sure, you got to have some talent. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But if you've got terrible character, and I don't really know the guy, but... Mm-hmm. Well, neither do I. So. Yeah, yeah. Hard to judge, but wicked. Wicked. I'll be, yeah. Hopefully someone... Trades for him. <laughs> Padres don't you want to do guys, it. You guys have got enough pitching there. Yeah, they do. They'd be yeah. like that. No, no they do. They, they do. We'll soon find out what happens uh, this next season coming up for sure. Um, Don, I really want to thank you for your time. You spent a lot of time with us. Um, I know that you get inundated with things. You're not one to take uh, a media stuff. To be fair, Damon and I don't treat this as media. We treat this as sharing the story of our great game and our legends and our great game, and you're one of those. So, just want to thank you for taking the time and, and really opening up. No, it's, it's my pleasure, and it's uh, come back to the very first thing I said: is that um, pretty much all the opportunities I've um, been um, presented in life um, come back to my family, um, Porirua, and softball. So, um, if the little things that I can do to, to help um, promote the game, um, I'm indebted to it, and I'll do whatever I can. And um, I say there are there are way more deserving. Um, softballers than me so I'm humbled that you that you took the time out to spend some time with me because, uh, yeah, you guys do a wonderful job and, and I said at the very outset is that um, you and Damien need to share your story um, because again you're the guys who are putting all this together and I think that maybe in terms of um, you spend some time and actually get on the couch to each other and actually interview each other and I think that will be really entertaining um, because again it's like we you know, we love this game. Some of us get um, some pretty cool opportunities to play at the highest level. Um, some of us don't. And, um, but we, we both share equally rich experiences that are probably the same in terms of the experiences I've had with the Black Sox. Probably no different to the experiences you've had with Dodgers or Northcote, you have ever played for. And, you know, and I'm, I understand that you dominate when you're on the mound, Damien. So, uh, so, yeah. Hardly. A, stri- a, a strikeout's a strikeout, whether it's... Uh, <laughs> I'll take one. <laughs> that is gold. Sweet. Man, really, yeah, no, really appreciate you um, answering answering the message. I know you've got a hectic schedule, so, mate, enjoy your enjoy your time home and, and enjoy all the other things that you've got planned in that calendar while you're here. Okay, no, my pleasure. Thanks, guys. Last thing I want to say before I uh, bid farewell to you is if you're listening to this live, get off. And go to Tower Club Rooms to the fundraiser tonight that Don is guest speaking at. And they're going to ask him plenty of questions there. It's about helping our sport out in the Tower. Our Premier Men's team needs some money. And 
Don's giving um, the opportunity to give back to them this this Friday. We'll make sure we put that in a post before it comes anyway. So Don, uh, again, we wish you the best of luck uh, with your Padres. Maybe not so much against the Dodgers, please. Not so much. No, actually, I love those games. They were the best games last year for us. Um, uh, yeah, everything you do in life, mate, you seem to be... You call it fluking, um, but you know what? You have this trait that every legend that sat on this couch or been on the Zoom call with Damon and I, it stands out a country mile, and that's how humble you are and your own dealings and your own actions uh, and not just in our great game of softball because you've achieved so much both as a player so I wanted to talk about your playing first but also as a coach and what you're doing now with high performance and the number of codes uh, that you're involved with and for us Kiwis to see what you achieve and to stay humble and it's just like you said the Black Sox when they played at home people love them because they're underdogs you're our underdog and we just love seeing what you do so thank you Sweet, guys. Well, there you go, ladies and gentlemen. Don Tricker. We didn't even talk about Hall of Fames and stuff because he doesn't want to. He doesn't need to. As he mentioned, if he's done a good job, then maybe people know a little bit about him. Well, I hope you've enjoyed getting to know a bit about him because it's been complete pleasure for Damien and I here. Gold-winning Black Sox 2000, 2004. That's just the tip of the iceberg. That's Don Tricker. Talk about humble. Mm. Wow. Mm. Mate, it, it doesn't matter who we've had on this pod with whatever they've accomplished in their career. Um, I'm going to say it now, that boy takes the cake. You know, I mean, just the genuine, uh, the humbleness, they're just, it's just the dude from Potty Door, bro. <laughs> and just, yeah, just, that was cool. What do you want? Why do you want it? Mm. Two powerful questions. Oh, like you said at the start of this in the intro, thought provoking. Um, we don't ask that why a lot, eh? We ask, we say what we want, and, and it's no. We never back it up into, into, as to why. And you know, there's things in our lives that we do because we do it. We don't ever ask that question why. And I, I swear, after spending what three or four hours with Don Tricker, um, I'm going to be asking that why now. Will you have a salt and pepper shaker in the middle of your dining table from now on? I'm going to be adding more salt and pepper, <laughs> uh, pepper shakers to the table, I reckon. Absolutely. I mean, I, I remember those kind of things with my dad and my grandparents. And, um, yeah, no, the, to hear that there was a strategy family at the at, at the dinner table, that's that's pretty special. Uh, hopefully I can pass that down one day. You know what? I, I didn't ask him this in the pod, and I did it out of respect for what he's currently doing. I just wonder what's next. Mm. I mean, you look at this this line of different uh, vocations that he's taken, all in high performance coaching uh, at different codes and things. What's what's next? What's the next gig? What's the next opportunity that um, people come knocking on Don Trick? I tell you what, you can't. No one knows what it is, mm. but when it does come. Dude, it's going to be wicked. You know, like he said to us beforehand, uh, he, he doesn't think he's applied for a job in 30 years. Um, opportunities arise, you know, and he's, he's a man that takes those opportunities if the reasons are and everything's backing up, you know. Um, so, yeah, wherever he goes, whatever he does, I think he's going to do uh, keep on doing wonders, man. Keep on doing us, yeah, us Kiwis proud. 
For you softballers listening to this, it's a true example of what you can achieve in life. Mm. Softball gives you such good groundings, friendships, morals, standing, understanding. And it's the ramp to achieving in life. Mm. And uh, he's showing you the pathway. So can you too. You're listening right now. You can achieve, just like Don Tricker. We believe in that too, right? Oh, absolutely, mate. Um, you know, last week it was uh, Naomi Shaw. What was her reason for softball go around the world? And you look at what Don's done. You know, he's every every Olympics he's run the hundred meters. Yeah. Every rugby field in the world he's been to, he's he's drop kicked um, with his left and right foot. Uh, Twenty five out of the um, major league ballparks in America, he's taking a few ground balls at shortstop so those are the special things that that he's got to do and 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 go around but hey it all starts with that mahi that he did all the all the all those years back um and those extras that they talk about hey so no well-deserved career well-deserved life but uh it ain't finished writing i'm sure you know what? this summer has been good and it's only getting better just like next week's podcast dude we took the opportunity and we heard a, a good friend of ours uh, was leaving New Zealand, heading to Australia to lo- leave, live. And uh, and before he does that, we got a chance to grab him and bring him on the couch. Uh, and he's going to be our podcast next week, Warren Stoddart. Absolutely. Hey, um, you know, maybe not the, the, the heights of some of the other coaches that have been around the traps, um, but a legend uh, in his own category, old Stoddy. You know, uh, we've had a lot of... Uh, the boys that owe their careers to him um, on this podcast and speak highly of him. And it was about time that we, we got went straight to the horse's mouth, if you will. And um, pretty special to spend the last uh, couple hours or what we got of him because he was to a time limit. Um, but very special to sit down and get to know Stoddy a bit more. It was awesome. I get a feeling, I know Stoddy well. He loves this game, mate. He's going to get emotional at some stage during this podcast next week. So I look forward to that. It'll be Warren Stoddard next week, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I hope you enjoyed um, Don tonight. It was a complete privilege and pleasure to be able to speak to one of our legends and Don Tricker tonight. Uh, and I hope that you've got those quotes. Don't forget, post Don't forget them in. Them in. Uh, message them in to, to Damien and myself. We'll straight to the uh, Beyond the Dugout page and we'll select the winner and announce that live. Maybe bring you onto the podcast Absolutely. when you're uh, you're beyond the dugout ball cap I love it let's get let's get the peoples on for sure fantastic well there you go ladies and gentlemen that's episode 3 to 4 all wrapped up with a bow pretty impressive one too a tricker bow it's been great to have you along tonight be kind to each other enjoy each other's company you know what turn that single into a double turn that double into a home run baby push the limits I love this game we love you all on behalf of Damien Collins, I've been Jason Goobies, a.k.a. Chopper. We'll see you all next time. Thank you, guys. Beyond the dugout, lace them up and we run out. Step up to the place, swing away, or you get struck out. Picture on the mound like you don't want to face this. Hit it so hard, you'll be running around the bases. Do it for your teammates, do it for the fam. Do it for your city, true ballers understand. You got to work together, you got to find a way. Put your body on the line and make that play. Beyond the dugout, lace them up and we run out. Step up to the place, swing away, or you get struck out. Picture on the mound like you don't want to face this. Hit it so hard, you'll be running around the bases. Beyond the dugout. Beyond the dugout. Beyond the dugout. Beyond the dugout.